Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly, definitely weekly, occasionally more frequently than that, uh, rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. Went a little faster so I could catch you up. I'd still do things at Freethink. I will always do things at Freethink. I'm, I'm, I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to you at this point. Also shouldn't be a surprise to you that I am flanked by... Greatness this evening. Uh, Matt Welch, editor at large of Reason Magazine, still in the building, still responsibilities at Reason. Generally not clear. I think he does things. Occasionally he writes things there. Sometimes he starts trouble, and sometimes we try to try to resolve it starts here on the trouble. podcast. Um, yeah. Also, Michael Moynihan, Vice News. Similarly, you know, it's just being Moynihan. Who knows at this doing point? whatever it is he does. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm excited to talk to both of you gentlemen. I am also excited to talk to our guests who in the previous release on the podcast, since I'm pretty sure about the sequence, we did have some conversation about, and we actually invited him on the podcast during the recording. And because he is an honorable gentleman and a scholar. Absolutely. He accepted our invitation and is here Two-time, I believe, Pulitzer Prize winner, unless he won a third since the last time I checked. No, I got a final nod, but just... just. <laughs> Two-time? I once won on a scratch ticket, but that's all I got. <laughs> also, uh, a contributor at CBS News, I think that's right. Correspondent. A correspondent at CBS News. Oh. Also, he's on the 60 Minutes in 6 program, and he'll have to explain to you why they lie the false advertising suggesting that this will be a product that's actually six minutes when, in fact, it could be of any length. <laughs> Wesley Lowry, ladies and gentlemen, in the building, or at least Wesley on the Zoom Lowry. call. In his building, yeah. From D.C. Um, the rest yeah, of us from New building, York. I promise. We're not in the building. <laughs> that's true. We'd be wearing masks if we were. We're not in the building. But we, but we would only be sitting three feet apart because we live dangerously. And I want to say, because Matt wasn't on the call when, and before he started recording, we came to praise him, not to bury him. Uh, I was praising Wes for actually coming on because we do often invite people uh, with whom we've had sort of disagreements, both minor, major, whatever. And, you know, some people say no, some people ignore it. Um, and it's tough in this day and age to get people to come on. So we uh, are incredibly appreciative that the, uh, the man who has Pulitzer is falling out of his shirt right now. You can see yeah. it. They're all over the place. Uh, has come on and, and uh, is going to talk to us. So thank you very much, Wes. I think it's, it's great to be able to have exchanges like this. I, I think there's plenty of interesting differences of perspective to flush out uh, with respect to your piece um, that was in Times not too long ago, Wes, and Matt Welch's response. I think we'll have an interesting conversation about um, objectivity in journalism, uh, moral clarity as an alternative posture and Matt's critique of that. And I'd, I'd say that broadly, the fifth columnists are probably in agreement with Matt. I am going to put myself in some sort of superposition where I'm agreeing with both of you in important respects and perhaps introducing some new perspective. I'd also hope that we have an opportunity to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter and some of the, the ongoing um, challenges in the country, or at least the interesting dynamic political landscape. But I 
and I wanted to air some of what I suspect are differences of perspective, or at least know our differences of perspective on those issues. But I wanted to start in a particular place because, Wes, you've done a lot of important journalism. But what I th- one of the things that I think you ought to be most heartily applauded for is your role in helping to establish this vital database that the Washington Post has, um, where they've been tracking police shootings. Um, I think a lot of people know you because of the work that you did on the ground um, around Ferguson, um, around the shooting of, uh, of Mike Brown and the, the subsequent investigation and certainly the, the days of protest there. But one of the things that came out of that was for us to actually have a, a publication, the Washington Post, and I believe The Guardian did this for some time as well, two of them really commit resources to documenting and tracking the number of people who are being shot and killed by police every single year. And we did have some data about this before, um, but it really wasn't until this project that we began to get a much sharper picture of it. And it's a project that has been maintained um, since it begun. I believe it was, what, 2015, 2014 was the first time that we actually had those numbers? So, so we launched in January 15. And one of the things I'll say on that, just really briefly, is we can't effectively argue about things unless we know what we're talking about, right? And so no matter where anyone is on the policing issue, right, you have to actually know what the underlying facts are in one direction or the other before you can begin having the theoretical or philosophical or ideological debate about it, right? And so what we now see frequently is the police unions use our numbers. The FOP sends our numbers out to, to advance whatever their argument is, right? The reformers mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. activists. Everybody depends on that database. Yes. As a journalist, I would much rather, I remember ta- having these conversations at the time in 14, and I actually think it was Kamala Harris, she was then the AG of the state of California, and we were talking, she did a fair amount of data collection in California, among many other things she did. But her and mm-hmm. I were talking about this once, and she said, and she goes, so much of this conversation is about emotion and anecdote and not enough of it about us actually knowing the answer, right? We're in 14, we're having this big conversation about if unarmed black people are being killed by the police too often. And literally none of us knew how many unarmed black people were being killed by the police. So how could mm-hmm. we argue about if it's too often or not often? You know, like, and so I think for me, I think a big part of, aside of any of my own personal beliefs or any of that, one of the things I hope my work can do historically and also moving forward when I think about what I take on is, can I do something that if even someone hates me and thinks everything I ever say is wrong, that the work itself will still be valuable to the conversation? Can you characterize for the class, like, is this like a 100% view of the country? Is this like a 50% view of the country? Sure. What do we know? And then what is left that we don't know about the specific question that it's trying to collect? So when we start, that's a really good question. When we started doing this work, we, again, we didn't even know what question we were going to ask. We started so narrow as like, can we figure out how many unarmed black people are killed by the police? Because that was the question coming out of Ferguson, right? And we expanded that out. And we said, maybe we can get a bigger sample than that, something that tells us how many Hispanic people are being killed, how many white people. And what we figured out was, this wasn't something we could do via records request or even going to all the departments. There are 18,000 police departments. Some of them are in states where they're not obligated to ever return our phone call. One of the examples I always use is the entire state of Tennessee. They don't have to respond to a records request unless you are a citizen of Tennessee. Hmm, wow. Like, Nashville police don't have to give me a police report, hmm. right? About anything, in any circumstance, right? Much less Memphis. Much less, and so we knew, and but beyond that, you all can imagine, I mean, the number of emails and calls it takes to get a podcast guest on 
18,000 police department asking <laughs> them like, for how many people you killed yeah. and details yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It would take you a decade to get one year of that information. So what we ended up, but what we figured out was, and part of this is because guns play a central cultural role in our society and our political conversation and in our media landscape, that if someone is shot and killed by a police officer, whether it be in the biggest media out places in the country, the New York cities, the Washington DCs, the LAs, or in the smallest places in the country, one reporter writes it down one time. The local afternoon news does something at fireworks. Oh. Fireworks. <laughs> we all got super nervous. Popping there. off shots. <laughs> lots of lots of lots of fireworks. So, um, Jesus Christ. Allie, right. behind me. Yeah. They're trying to prevent black and brown people from sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. Stop yeah. it. If someone's shot and killed by the police, one person writes it down at least one time. And so what we figured out was we could basically set up an elaborate system of Google alerts and searches where it served as a tip sheet, right? We found one media report of mm. this shooting in, you know, in Billings, Montana. Well, now we can call the Billings police and say, hey, we hear you shot someone last night. Can you give yeah. us three more details? Yeah, yeah. And so we just start building out the Excel sheet. So what we believe to be true, right? We've done it. The Washington Post has done it every year since January 1st, 2015. So we have five full years of data plus some real-time stuff now uh, for this year. We end up with about 1,000 fatal police shootings a year. Our bet is we're probably catching 80% of the country, Right. Again, we know it's an imperfect. There are probably some police shootings out there that no one wrote about, right? But we think we are probably getting the vast majority of shootings. But one thing I will note, because of what we're looking at is shootings, George Floyd would not be in that database. Right. Eric Gardner would not be in that database. Sandra Bland. So there are plenty of cases that spur the national consciousness that for our purposes aren't in the data, right? The police, in fact, are involved in many more deaths, justified or not, beyond what we are recording because we have a very specific measure. Again, just because we didn't want to do a database that said it was catching everything but couldn't. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's, not a, there's no guarantee that if someone gets choked by the police, the media will write about it or tased and killed by the police. I mean, it doesn't, only in the most egregious cases where it's caught on video or it doesn't get coverage. And so we knew, we didn't want to say this is everything if we might be missing 2000 cases. Do you have any sense, and it's fine if the answer is no, obviously, like shootings is 1,000, so the rest of it is eh, 500, 200, 15,000? And Wes, correct me if I'm wrong on this, and I might be wrong, but I remember thinking that it's pretty consistently 1,000 too, isn't it? It's, consi- it's yeah. consistent. We're on pace this year, where, by the way, for the vast majority of the year, most of the country has been locked in, its ho- in our houses, right? right? We are still on pace for a thousand this year. Yeah. Right? There's no substantive difference. That's interesting. And one of the things I'll say is the unarmed, the number of unarmed people has dropped over the years since we started. That's but right. Yeah. What the, the caveat I always give on that, I would love for it to be true that like the mm-hmm. police aren't killing more. One thing that we don't know is we don't know the people who got shot and lived. And so the difference between a fatal police shooting and a non-fatal police shooting is how good of a shot are you and how quickly they call the ambulance. Yeah. So there's a world where, for example, the police shot more unarmed people last year, but more of them lived. But it's right? a, and so, so, yeah. so when it gets to that like, type of analysis, there's just a little blind spot there, right? And I don't ever want to assert that right, we right. know a thing. Beyond. To answer Matt's question really quickly, 
I believe the shootings are likely the vast majority of the people who are killed by police broadly, right? Um, And once you start getting into other subsections, it gets a little harder. So for example, how do you deal with traffic accidents from a police chase? Yeah, Is that person killed by the police or are they not, Mm. right? Prison and jail deaths gets complicated. The Huffington posted a really good project on this a few years ago. How do you deal with some of those, right? And so, again, and that's one of the reasons we went with such a tight, uh, like, kind of gathering is because it gets very complicated very quickly once you're not defining it kind of specifically that way. Can we talk a little bit about the the details here as well? Um, we, we've already sort of touched on the accuracy, the fact that there does seem to be a trend line in terms of the total number of shootings. But even with the armed versus unarmed, and this is a, a point that I think is important to make, we're depending on police investigations about these shootings. The the notion that someone is actually armed when in fact they you know had like a hose in their hand or something like that. Like, this is somewhat debatable. Even someone who has a gun on them is not necessarily a threat to law enforcement. Like, the actual material necessity of an investigation, a thorough investigation in every single instance, still seems to be something of pretty substantial importance. Is that something you could speak to a little bit? Of course. And I, and I think that, and, and to be clear, this is something we got into some, like, crazy internal fights about, right? You got a team of 12 people, and we have to define the word armed, right? Mm-hmm. And... What does that, is Tamir Rice with a toy gun armed? The cops say he is. Mm -hmm. The activists say under no circumstance, he's a kid in a park with a toy. Where do you mark him, right? Someone who allegedly drives their car at the police, are they armed with their vehicle? Sure. The police would say that's eminently dangerous. Right. What the activists would say is, did he really drive the car at you? Or did you, you know, we don't know. We're basing this on your word. What if he was trying to get away? Right. What's the suddenly there are all of these subjective decisions and the primary source of information are the police, the government agency that just killed this person who I'm not even suggesting they're lying, per se, but clearly not an unbiased source. In right. a specific. Yeah, the instance, the right? incentive runs, incentives run in a particular direction in a circumstance like of that. Course. Yeah. Of course they do. Right. Like and so and so there's a lot of complication there. But beyond that. Right. One thing we know is it is not illegal to be armed in the United States of America. That's a decision we have made far beyond, like, and so therefore, armed for a long time became a shorthand, right? Oh, armed black guy, cops killed him. Well, he deserved it. He had a gun. He must have, well, and then we watched the Philando Castile video. Yeah, I was going to say, like, is he armed in that, in the database? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had a gun, right? But but it, but it speaks to, there's one example I always think of, and I, I, always, every, I say this all the time, the mean to look up this guy's name, and I don't, but it was one of the first cases we did in 2015 because again, the database meant we were now interacting with all these police shootings that never make national headlines because we're looking at all these little cases. And it's this guy somewhere up in uh, the Northeast, somewhere in New England. I want to say Vermont or Maine or New Hampshire. And he's up, older white gentleman in, a, in his cabin in the woods where he's retired. And his kids hadn't heard from him in a few weeks. And he wasn't returning their calls. And so they call for a wellness check. So the cops drive up to his cabin, knock on his door, and he's like, who the hell could find me out here? And answers the door with his shotgun. The cops get scared and they shoot and kill him. This is a man standing in the threshold of his home, holding his legally owned weapon, who perhaps reasonably thinks, who in the world is at my door? And the police say, this guy had a gun, we got scared, we killed him. Legally justified shooting. And also, objectively, armed a guy, killed by police, 
right? If he ever got arrested for shoplifting however many decades ago, he's a career criminal, you know, career criminal with the, but it speaks to how, like, I think so often in media, things we write about these cases become shorthands, right? So we see this with armed and unarmed all the time, right? And often these cases are much more complicated, even as they're messy. Mm-hmm. Alton, the day before the Flando Castile video is the Alton Sterling video in Baton Rouge. And he did have a gun tucked. But then we saw the body camera video and the cops run up to him and go, we're going to kill you if you don't listen to us, MFR, right? Well, that's pretty informative about what happened. Mm-hmm. More so than the fact that he had a gun in his waistband in Louisiana, right? right? Where every other guy might. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was thinking of this in the Breonna Taylor um, example of like, how is that filed? Because, you know, as, as much as you can absolutely loathe and hope that uh, a few police officers in Minneapolis, God knows who, go to prison for a very long time. In that situation, I was like, okay, so here's the thing, is that the no-knock raid is the problem, right? These guys are carrying this out and they're fired upon and I'm on his side. You think somebody's robbing your house. And then on the police's end, like, okay, I'm getting shot at, I shoot back. And so that to me is this horrible mess, which is the policy is the problem. And I'm thinking when that happened, when I was actually reading the details, is that how do you categorize that? Because somebody has a gun, not the person who got killed, and the person who had a gun had every right to discharge that gun, you know, under you know any standard. And this is something that, that the NRA should be defending. And we know the NRA mm. backs away from things like, you know, the Panthers and yes. going to the state capitol in California in 1968 or 69. So, yeah, I mean, that, I was like, that's an, I get why that happened. So two, two examples that are similar to this. So to answer your question directly, right, I believe, and as soon as I say this, one of you going to pull up the database, I'm going to be proven wrong. I believe <laughs> in this case, Brianna Taylor would be marked unarmed. She was not armed, right? Mm. By no account, did she have a weapon, right? And there are a fair number of police shootings where there are multiple people involved, right? The dead person was not armed. That's an objective fact. Mark the box, right? Are there complicating details? Yes. And anytime I talk about this, like I urge people not to, oh, well, there are 15 unarmed. So there are 15 bad ones. There are 200 more complicated than that. And that's not to, the way, underestimate the number of times where an armed person is actively a threat to some, you know, but it's just to state that there are a lot of people marked armed who when you dig into it, you're like, does this person need to be dead? I don't know. Yeah. And there are times where there are unarmed people where you're like, well, all right, that guy kind of. <laughs> what, what I would note is there are two examples um, I would give similar to this. The first is one of the first police shootings I ever read about, um, Ayanna Stanley Jones, who is a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old black girl in, in Michigan, in Detroit. You know, she's this young girl sitting in the living room with her grandmother and the police have a warrant for a violent felt for someone who's a murder suspect, but he's in apartment B and she's in apartment A. And they throw flashbang grenades through the window, storm in, the dog barks, they open fire and they shoot this little girl through the head, right? Now again, right? I mean, it's one of the most, agree- it's, and, and by the way, the first 48 is with them. So the cameras are rolling, mm. right? It's a completely egregious case. Um, there's a really good piece on this that ran in Mother Jones several years ago by Charlie LaDuff. Who's oh, I know Charlie yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah Char- Char- no Charlie's Charlie. a complete psycho oh, and he's great. So, I love him. Yeah, so complete. Exactly. <laughs> love that guy. He's, I've, hang, I've hung out a few very late nights in Detroit with him and it was a blast. <laughs> yeah, so we could talk about that off tape. <laughs> the, um, the, um, 
But he wrote what is, I think, one of the definitive accounts of this for Mother Jones. It'll pop up. I think it ends up being perhaps the preface of his book or, you know, but, but another one of these cases where it's clear that, like, it is not that the police were not pursuing a bad guy. It's that everything they did after that was wrong. There's another case, I think, about Corey Jones. And this is a case I actually think of this kind of Black Lives Matter era didn't get enough attention in a weird way because it was particularly egregious, although there was accountability eventually. Corey Jones is literally the church drummer. And he's driving from, he's like a guy who drums in all these bands. He's driving from a Saturday night gig home um, so he can get up early in the morning to go drum at church. And his car breaks down on the freeway. Calls a friend who comes and waits with him for AAA. AAA says it's five minutes away, so the friend leaves. An off-duty plainclothes police officer sees this guy standing at his car on the, on the side of the freeway, pulls off the wrong way on the freeway to come the wrong way, runs up to him, jumps out of his, at his unmarked vehicle with his gun drawn. And Corey Jones is like, who the hell is this guy trying to mug me? Pulls his gun out, and the officer lights him up. Well, you're, you're broken down on the side of the road at midnight on a Saturday. Some guy you don't know in an unmarked car drives the wrong way down the freeway, jumps out at you. For a lot of people, that's why they own a handgun. <laughs> like that's a precise scenario is why. And it was one of these. And what was proven later on, because there were recordings, was the officer never identified himself. The officer ended up lying about what happened in the interact. But it was a case where of a guy just broken down on the side of the road, waiting for help, doing nothing to anyone. And because of the police tactic a scenario was created where a lawful gun owner is like, what, what the hell's going on? I feel threatened. So I'm going to pull my gun out. And now the cop says, I see a gun. I can kill you. What do you suspect from your reporting being in Ferguson to where we are now that that number, I think in 2018, it was 38 people who were um, uh, unarmed black men. I mean, I think they were all men in uh, that a number now, it was nine, and now it's been sort of gone up to 15. It's somewhere in between there, right? Mm-hmm. And as you say, I mean, it's hard to, to tell. So, but either way, it looks like a pretty pretty significant decrease. What do you attribute that to? I mean, you were talking about body cams there, which are, are, are a lot more ubiquitous now. And, you know, people are paying attention. And when, when, when I see a cop come out of his car here, I see people start filming right away. I mean, this is very different than it was when Rodney King, the guy just bought a shoulder-mounted VHS camcorder and was like, oh, look at my life. One of the most remarkable pieces of video in existence, if only because it existed yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. That in 1992, yeah. some guy was like, are they beating someone across the freeway? Mm-hmm. Let me pull out my VHS yeah. camcorder. That I got today yeah. and barely know how to use. <laughs> Change everything. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think that, I mean, do, do you have any like uh, sort of theories? And I know uh, I'll give you a wide berth here. Like sure. why, why the de- decrease? Because that's a great thing. It's a positive thing. Of course. And like I said, and with the caveat that if someone presented me data tomorrow that says actually more people are just living, I would have, I would say, sure, that's probably right. You know, I don't, I don't know what I don't know mm-hmm. there. What is unquestionably true, right, is that there's been an, a environment of accountability that has been different these last few years, not just with the internal cameras, but also with the cell phone cameras everywhere and the surveillance cameras. I think that there is a, the police themselves would say it, they would frame it differently, but they would say, We've been neutered. We can't beat up people the way we used to. You guys, hate, you know, they would. Many got more fireworks going. <laughs> police weirdly not, punctuate. Police every time. Police will not respond. Yeah. Right when you say X, <laughs> boom. Can we, can we refer to it as ordinance, please? Ordinance, <laughs> not fireworks. <laughs> I'm never you know, going to stop taking but, shots there. Never. <laughs> 
but, it, but there is a, I do think there's a sense of some of this poem, you know, that, that there is an increased amount of accountability that perhaps is making some of these officers a little more hesitant in cases that they probably already should have been a little more hesitant. Right. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of scenarios where the gun doesn't need to come out. And yes. if a little increasing accountability is keeping the gun in the holster, that's objectively a good thing. Right. Um, we haven't seen what we have not seen is any drastic increase in officers being killed, which is what was being warned, right? right. That if you tell the police yeah. they can't just do whatever That's they right. want, all these cops are going to get a lot killed. of dead cops, right? So yep. There have been cases of targeted attacks on police officers. I wouldn't write that off. But what I'll also say is it's not even close. There just isn't statistically any type of significant increase in police officers being targeted that way. And, and so even as the number of people being killed has dropped, right? Because that was the police argument at the time, mm-hmm. that it's us or them. And in all these cases, if we hadn't killed them, it was going to be us. Mm-hmm. And that does not so far seem to have been true. I think that the nature of the conversation we're having around this underscores the, the importance of the debate that is raging in a lot of newsrooms um, and that you uh, are... I think eloquently argued a perspective for in the pages of the New York Times um, not so long ago with this conversation about objectivity versus moral clarity. And I'll give you an opportunity to describe it in a moment, but I do want to highlight something which is perhaps putting a pin in something I want us to definitely return to later. Um, So you can respond to this point if you'd like now, or you could save it and we could come back to it. But as I'm hearing you describe all of these fatal police encounters, I am wondering to myself, huh, is it malfeasance? Is it malice? Is it incompetence? Is it bad policy? Is it bias? And it's become very common to simply refer to all of this as systematic racism. And in one respect, someone might imagine that as a morally clear statement, a statement that underscores what someone might perceive as the fundamental truth about all of these things. And in another respect, I worry, this is Camille's perspective on this, that it might also be flattening the world in a really important way and obscuring the nuance that might actually help you determine what is important to pay attention to and what might save the most lives and injecting a conversation with what is undeniably the most sort of controversial and heated topic that we have in our polity, race. Let's just go there now. I want to hear that now. Go there now. Or we can question. go there now. No, let's go there now. Or we can go there now. I, I think that because when you say that, right, and I and I think that's really I think that's I think that's a really astute way of kind of describing some of this. And and the reality is my answer to this, not my opinion, but like what my reporting leads me to believe, is that all of the above are true. Right? I can walk you through police shootings where it's very clearly a policy issue. I can walk you through police shootings where it is very clearly a, this individual cop is a terrible human issue. I can Mm -hmm. walk you through instances where it's like, why was this person pulled over for this reason in the first place where it, and and so, and so for me, I do think as a general rule, and again, like social media and Twitter reduces everything to like sentence fragments, right? As a general rule, I believe all the above is true, but I think two separate, and, and, and specifically two separate things are true. I think the available evidence suggests there is obviously and clearly some systemic bias in our law enforcement system and criminal justice system writ large, right? That no matter how you look, traffic stops, shootings, like we can drill into specific ones, right? But as a bucket, 
every time someone goes to investigate this, what they find is, oh, as it turns out, black people who chew gum are more likely to get beat up by the police than white people who chew gum. Like every time. There's never a, almost no studies end up not finding a disparity right? And the ones that do are almost always the ones that set out for political purposes to disprove it, not that went in neutrally. And also, there are clear and obvious policy spaces, right? So one of the things we don't talk about in this space a lot, although we've already talked about it here, is that, look, the biggest thing that would cut down on the number of police deaths would be getting rid of the Second Amendment. Most of these people get killed because of guns and because the cops believe every person has a gun, right? Rightly or wrongly, everyone has a gun. Why? Because we live in a country where when in doubt, you have to assume that guy's got a gun. And I'm not advocating that, right? But I'm just stating that like the gun issue is as much about police violence as any other issue. That, if, that the gun is the single biggest factor in determining if someone gets killed by the police or not, right? Now, the, so again, I, I, for me at least, it seems like in all of the above. And I do think sometimes our public conversation gets caught in this like, fight between two people who insist that like two different things that are both there it's all one or it's all the other i would add just to that that radley balco who we talked uh, with last night has pointed out that of all the disparities that are out there in racial stats and criminal justice it is the amount that black people have their sentences enhanced yes. because of gun extra things. And that some of those have been changed a little bit, I think, by the First Step Act, but not much. That's the single highest number on the graph is the, is the gun element of racial disparities. No, of course. And it's, and it's just 100%. And, I, and I, what I also think is difficult sometimes in these conversations is I think broadly across the country, we don't have an agreed upon understanding of what race or racism even is. So for a lot that's, of people, that's that you've just sunk the entire podcast. I'm just warning you now. <laughs> we're gonna go and just let you and Camille hash this out. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Morning, ahead. Morning, ahead. We're gonna zoom over to the side yes, here and like talk about the smokes. Totally. Let's talk about well, music. I, I, I was talking to Tim Scott, the Republican senator, uh, for this piece I did for me, and we're talking, and I'm talking to him, uh-huh. and he because he's pushing the Republican legislation on this, and he calls me, and we're talking, we're walking through it, and and it was that day he had said he. You know, it's one of those viral tweets where, like, I see half of his quote and everyone's mad at it. And I hadn't even read the full quote yet. But I was like, seems like you said something about systemic racism that everyone's mad about. What was that? And, like, and so we're walking through this. And, and he says to me, he goes, you know, and we have, we're coming out of a segment of our interview where he has detailed for me every time he's been stopped by the police. Which is, like, four times on the grounds of the Capitol building. Seven times in one year, the year after he got elected to his county council, his first public office. And he's talking about all these times where he's been stopped for his words driving while black. Clearly he's not committed any crime and he's just like a big black guy in the the wrong part of town. And then he goes, you know, but I'm not willing to say there's systemic racism. I said, Senator Scott, isn't that the definition of systemic racism? That the system interacted with you all these ways for nothing other than your race. Not because you were committing more crimes, not be, but like simply be, your experience was different because of your race, is what you're saying. You're saying you got pulled over for driving while black, right? Well, it's a complicated slightly, Wes. I, you just mentioned that he said, you said in the wrong part of town. 
And that obviously adds to things quite a bit. I mean, I wonder if that, I mean, that doesn't obviously apply to the capital. What he was saying in some yeah. of those contexts was that he was a black person in a nice part of town. I see. And in other, I see. And in, no, no, but in, in some of the other cases he was talking about, it was that he was in a rougher part of town visiting his grandfather. But it cuts in both of those directions, right? Right, like, it, it, it's, it, and mm-hmm. so, but like I said, I framed this to him and he ultimately gets around to, well, that's up to you guys to define the terms. I don't know what that means. Right. But I, but I mean that to like, like, I don't mean that in like any oppositional way to him. It's just the sense of like, when I talk about something like systemic racism, that is precisely what I am talking about. And he is like, I don't believe in systemic racism. Here are my seven systemic racism anecdotes. And so there's some like, <laughs> like, wait a second. Yeah. Like, how do you? <laughs> and so there is just some, like, I think that some people hear that and they go, so what you're saying is that the entire system of policing makes people racist. He's like, well, that's, that's not. Like that's not not what, but that's not what people are saying in that context. What they're saying in that context is the way policing is carried out, or the way the criminal justice system is carried out. It systemically has an impact on one set of people that's different than the others, and that determinant factor is their race. But like, I think we have a term issue, right? But when you say determinant factor, sure. I wonder about that there because I was reading a column that uh, Radley had wrote. Uh, and this is the third time we've mentioned him, and I, I wish I'd had an opportunity to ask him about this directly, but he, descri- he defined it, he says, systemic racism, it means that we have a system and institutions that produce disparate outcomes, regardless of the intentions of the people who work within them. Yeah. And something that, that vague, honestly, like, I don't know how instructive that is. If only, for example, like murder were illegal in this country, like black people would be disproportionately arrested and convicted for it. And that would make the system systemically racist. Like, is that instructive? And, and again, to, to pivot back to the question I asked earlier, since we're addressing it now, if it's not terribly instructive in a circumstance like the one I just highlighted, it may be instructive in other contexts, but it might also just be a distraction. It might also take your eye off the ball. And certainly when I look at like the Black Lives Matter protests and the passions that they've inspired, And oftentimes, like the extremely overheated rhetoric that I encounter related to it when I hear people talk about genocides, where I hear a phrase that I know you used for the title of your book, like, they can't kill us all, like things that I see routinely, like, there's a lot of hysteria around these issues and a lot of dependence on tropes about Black people being hunted down daily. And it's that can't be substantiated by the facts. And it seems to be informed by the dependence on and the determination to categorize these things as what is still like the most damaging thing someone can be in this country, a racist. And I think there's a a bit of conflation there that it does serve to excite passions. We know that there is ample evidence of that, but whether or not it actually resolves our focus in a way that truly informs our understanding is a fundamentally sure. different question. And I don't, I don't know that we've really resolved that. Yeah, and I don't know that it's resolvable, but one of the things I would also say, though, is I, I was just having a similar conversation in a very different context, right? Um, if, if, say, you run a newsroom and every black person who works for you thinks the newsroom is racist, thinks they, they're, they, they're, they're facing prejudice, is it particularly productive to spend your time investigating if specifically or not they face racism or asking the question of why does every black person I meet think we're racist, right? Like 
even if it is a management I, issue, I think that's an right, important question to ask. Issue, you still had a massive yeah. failure and the way it is. And so like, look, I would love for there to be no racism in the system. And if you guys just, and if people stop getting killed, we don't have to have, we don't have to debate it at all. Right. Like that, like we can sit here and argue forever about is Eric Gardner dead because he was black or was it because look, what would be dope is that if he wasn't dead and that, like, and that would solve the problem. And I do think that, and like I said, and I also, and so I try to, and this is part of my philosophy in reporting and what guides me in general in terms of the decisions I make about what projects to pursue, what stories to write, that type of stuff, is that I do think it's a job of the fourth estate to bring the questions of the populace to the power, right? And so if a bunch of relatively powerless people mm. are saying, the system is racist and screwing us over, it's not necessarily my job to go, actually, you all don't know what you're talking about. It's my job to go to the powerful people and go, so prove to me how this isn't true. Like, what is, like, because because there is some, because that's our, I think that's at least part of the role of journalism is to speak for people who otherwise don't, don't have Tim Scott's phone number, right? And ask him these questions that they would mm-hmm. want to ask. You know, I, what I also think, though, on some of this is when you do look at the statistics, I, I think we sometimes forget how relatively segregated and walled off our existences are that there are people who live in places who it feels like every day someone they know is getting mugged by the cops right it's real it's a real experience it's not like a theoretical it's not a hysterical it's right and so that informs there's a for for some people even in an aggregate right with the bigger numbers, this isn't true of the smaller unarmed number now, with the bigger number, that averaged out to one unarmed black person a week. One might argue that's a lot, right? Like that's, you know, like, now again, we can, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Always right on cue. Stop yeah. talking amazing. about the cops, yeah. man. Right? Like, they hear me and they're trying to scare me inside. <laughs> What's Wes talking about? Set one off. <laughs> and beyond that, again, I know, and I know this is someone who lives like in a nicer neighborhood and, and has, is educated and works. At, like I also know that I'm not statistically taking the brunt of this while a set of people are dealing with every murder and every police mugging. And where for them, it is in fact true <laughs> that like it's a crisis and it's happening all the time, right? But Wes, is it true? I mean, this is just, a, I mean, a personal question. And I mean, is it true for you? Um, when you are out and about in Washington, D.C., or doing your reporting, um, it's also, I mean, you know, you start your piece talking about someone saying, you know, what the hell are you doing here in Roxbury? Is that it's funny because I was actually thinking about when I kind of misunderstood you on the Tim Tim Scott thing. I grew up in Massachusetts and we had busing and uh, we had the Met, what was called the Metco program. And by the way, a listener misunderstood that and emailed me the other day and he's like, you're in the Metco program? Were you the only white person in I was like, no, 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 we had the Metco at our school. I was not the trailblazing, you know, white guy in the Metco program. But the amazing thing was, and it just reminded me of it, because when when the late buses um, went, you couldn't get home. And those, a lot of those kids were playing sports. And so we would take turns, I think I mentioned this, we take turns driving them back to, to their houses in, you know, uh, Mattapan, uh, Roxbury, Dorchester, et cetera. And if you hung out long enough, uh, you were the one who were stopped. And this happened a lot because like, what is the white guy from like, he's probably buying drugs. So it's, I mean, it's kind of like a racist <laughs> thing of like, these are people sell drugs, yeah. right? And you're there, they're like targeting you. Like, you gotta be here for some here for weird reason. reason. Exactly. Yeah, there's no rate. There's no way you're here because like you're being nice to the kid that you go to school with. But just on the personal issue, 
of saying that, you know, we live in this world is that you're still black, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what world you live in. So if you go out, do you feel that yourself? Or is that something that you feel is probably more focused on, on, on communities in like the Southeast and DC? I, mean, I think it cuts a few different ways, right? I think that I'm also like a relatively light-skinned black and I'm biracial, right? You know, so like there, there's some of that that does factor in. A lot of people think I'm like Egyptian or Arabic or people start talking to me in Spanish. Like, I, you know, I'm like um, racially ambiguous enough that I get, I get a little bit of everything. But um, I think a few things are true. The first is that, and part of this is by the nature of being a reporter, right? I feel pretty comfortable everywhere because that's my, actually my job, right? And, and I live in places where I feel comfortable. I live in a majority black neighborhood in Northeast in DC and that, cause that's where the people I want to be around, right? Um, I, now look, I know, um, you know, my eyebrows raise when a cop car drives past me every single time. Um, I know when I get pulled over, one of the first questions I'm going to get asked is, do you own this car? Which is never a question that's been asked when I've been pulled over with a white friend. Um, the, and what also, where this also manifests is very often when I'm on reporting trips, where I'm literally out of place. I'm knocking on doors in some neighborhood of Milwaukee I've never been in before. Where, and I look objectively suspicious, right? I have like a notebook and I'm trying to find the address that I'm... <laughs> I mean, by the way, is there a lot of people in Wisconsin, like all the criminals have notebooks or something? Like we're sketching, we sketch the houses before we're all, all I know is I get a lot of, I get a lot of, like, I, I have had the police called on me half a dozen times while out reporting in whiter places that, like, you know, it, and again, I'm not saying that would never happen to a white reporter in other contexts. I also know that my black reporter friends have also had this happen to them, right? It's happened, it's happened, it's happened to me too, by the way. Yeah, you know, where it's yeah. like, it's kind of like, you're not in the right place. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What I'll also say is that when I'm out in the protest and the cops want to come, you know, tear gas a bunch of people, and none of them are like, that guy's got a press pass on. I'm just another one of those black people in the street, Right. And there, and, and there is some difference there, right? I've been in those scenarios with a lot of white reporter friends <laughs> and they're like, all right, you guys are the reporters. You get out of here. And I'm like, excuse me, what are you talking about, right? And can that also, and, and I don't know if this is a personal experience, but can that also be from black cops? Yeah. Because I've noticed a lot <laughs> that black police chiefs, for instance, in America are almost in every major city. I mean, there are very few cities, New York City, one of them, uh, that does not have a black police chief, Boston does, et cetera, Baltimore, Chicago. I mean, you can go through the list, and there's a lot of majority-minority um, uh, police forces, yeah. right? Uh, it's true of New York, it's true of Baltimore, it's true of Chicago, et cetera. And that was, of course, considered something that would be helpful because there was an active push to get more minority police officers and have more minority police officers in minority neighborhoods that would understand neighborhoods more and maybe seem less threatening than the white cop walking through. And yet it happens a lot with black cops too. You know, and, if, and, and I, I wonder what it is about that and if it is a power issue mixed with race. Because I mean, yeah. I, see, I saw a lot of pictures of the protests, by the way, <laughs> I've seen some people in New York, like right by Williamsburg. And there were all these like white girls who looked like they went to Bennington being restrained by two black cops. Well, and, and I think that that's, I mean, one of the ways I think about it, right, is I'm not, and this is, and this perhaps portrays my own kind of personal, what my own personal beliefs about this are, right? The reporting will be the reporting. Whatever the studies show, that's what we put out, right? I've never believed this is about a personal animus thing, right? At, all, at, at any level, right? And so with the exception of Mark Furman or, you know, there will always be that guy, right? 
But also, there are jerks and sociopaths of all races and, and backgrounds, right? Like, and, and perhaps they might be attracted to like a position where they get to boss everyone around and carry a gun. Who knows, right? Like, but with very little like educational requirement to get into it and low training standards. All of that said, the when I think about this, right? Every time we've looked at the race of the officer in our studies, and we've never published a big piece on this, in part because it is a little mm-hmm. too incomplete, but mm-hmm. we've never found any correlation whatsoever. Not that more, not that white officers kill more unarmed black people, not that black officers kill fewer. That like we've never found anything that was statistically significant as it relates to the race of the officer in these incidents. And one thing that, and again, that wasn't surprising to me necessarily. There are some folks on our team who were like shocked by this, and I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. But and, but there's a, but there's a few different things for that, right? As I talk to black members of law enforcement, and that's line cops, that's command staff, that's district attorneys, that's Right. One, they talk a lot about the pressures that they face within a department like that. Whose side are you on? Are you with us? Are you with them? What are you going to do? Right. That they deal with those types of pressures. But beyond that, if you are trained to behave in a certain way and everyone gets the same training. Right. And, and among those trainings, too often is keep going forward, keep escalating, escalate, escalate. It doesn't really matter who receives that training. The second thing I'd say on that, though, is right. I live in a, like I said, I live in a pretty black neighborhood in Northeast DC. I'm very comfortable here. I know the neighbors. I know. Well, why, why wouldn't you be comfortable there, Wes? Why wouldn't you be comfortable around black people? <laughs> black people. people? What are you trying <laughs> to say? <laughs> oh, I, I thought you said you live in a very black neighborhood. <laughs> You're very comfortable there. Why would, why would you be uncomfortable? What are you saying about black people? I'm not from Southeast. I'm not from Anacostia. Right? So just to drop me there and go, well, you're going to be better at this. You, you, you know, right? Like, I'd be like, I don't know anyone here, right? Like, it's not, and I think that there is sometimes some overestimation of what that means and what that looks like, mm-hmm. especially with the diversity within Black Americans, right? When I go hang out with my girlfriend's Ethiopian family and they're speaking yeah. a language I don't understand, being like, well, but you're Black. Solve their problem. I, mean, yeah. I don't know what they're talking about, right? Like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> there are actually the cultural differences that are geographic, that are language-wise, that are, are you immigrant black, mm-hmm. are you African-American black, are you, right, like, are you African-American black from the burbs, are you African-American, like, there's just like a bunch of different, like, you know, it's different. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we might overestimate, there's still the sense of one of the reasons they wanted this, right, they wanted people who were from the neighborhoods, had skin in the, look, black or white, if you're driving in from the burbs to earn your paycheck and driving back out, just because you look like the people there doesn't necessarily mean you know them any more deeply than your white colleague making that same commute. And so I think that's something we have to think about at least sometimes. Right? I think that's I think that's a wonderful point. It's why we have to capitalize B because of the <laughs> uniformity of blackness. Stop it. I mean, that just it just makes sense. I want to. It's the absurdity of blackness. Please, please go on, Matt. Well, I want to. Here comes, um, here comes the white splaining from Matt. <laughs> By the way, if you're going to white splain, take the bandana uh, off because it's like the whitest shit I've ever seen in my life. No, no, no. Look. We actually need music for Matt's white splaining. Look, lover, lover boy <laughs> revival is not going to happen like just with a, everybody being passive. That's true. That's like, true. It's going to take some effort. No, but I, I think about this. A lot of what you're talking about, Wes, is, is like power. Um, and yeah. and power dynamics um, uh, as as a kind of analysis, and it's something that's always animated the way that I look at the criminal justice system, and also like how to, how to deal with it. Like, let's say for the sake of example that like uh, 
most cops were racist, which I don't believe, but let's just say that that was true. What would you do? I would like the listeners to know that Matt said that. I didn't. Wes Larry, author of the forthcoming book, All Cops Are Racist. <laughs> what you would do is remove. There's going to be a Breitbart write up by this before you post the podcast. You would <laughs> remove their power. And, and I, I'm curious about this in the context, and this might be a, a pivoting. Uh, possibility to talk about the your kind of role, actually your central role, which I think is uh, fascinating in like the journalism conversation and the uh, what Camille teased up at the top, like uh, um, the way that you portrayed it uh, as of being like you know there's a, a culture or a structure of objectivity which you know is sort of like a status quo whiteness in many uh, uh, cases or certainly like a power status quo laziness on one side. And we need to sort of remove that with a moral clarity, moral clarity as uh, like a a aspirational goal. It gets people when they're talking about racism. It doesn't get them when they're talking about power analysis, generally speaking, right? Like you might dispute this, but I'm going to, as a throat clear here, like People right now are like they're not like doing you know power. The police have too much power, and that's why my Instagram has this square right now. It's like Black <laughs> Lives Matter right now, and I'm I racism is horrible, and I want to be on the other side of racism, and so they feel like they're engaging in moral clarity by making these statements or supporting these activists or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and yet I I, I wonder if. They're losing the plot or like by having that be, and this is a much more a Camille point than mine, but I'll start it with here. Um, like if there were no no-knock raids and we weren't enforcing drug laws, the Breonna Taylor situation looks a lot different than it does. Like a huge amount different. I mean, I don't know the racial makeup of everybody who was involved in that. I don't. There's, there's so many of these going on right now that it's really hard to like keep track but I do know the power thing. Mm-hmm. The power thing is like, don't enforce drug laws, don't have no knock raids, you might have a better situation. And so the question is like, in terms of the journalistic call for like having moral clarity being much more of an anchor, uh, guiding light or whatever, than uh, an, an idea about objectivity, we might quibble about the history of that term later, but like, aren't you inviting people to follow the thing that they are exercised about now, like sort of inflamed about now, but that doesn't necessarily make things more clear about the way that the structures themselves are, just like looking at them, let alone how to kind of unwind them and wind them down. Yeah, yeah no, of course. And actually, that's a really interesting framing and a good way to get into this, right? Because I'll say two things. The first is that I actually don't think we're very far apart on this. I, I don't. Like, I, I objectively don't actually think there's a lot of space between what we believe. And, I, and that's my own summary and reading of, what, of where you are on this and my, what I believe I believe, right? Um, and I say that in part because I also think a lot of my journalism, my, one of my foundational things is about power analysis. I cover the government killing its citizens. <laughs> Look at you. It's amazing. <laughs> Every time. It's truly amazing. I've actually decided he's doing a DJ Clue thing. That's what's happening here. Every time he gets ready to say something dope. You know, I'm telling you, it's the government that is killing its citizens. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Clue. I know. I know. This is how you guys know that like 
Cointelpro is listening to my calls. <laughs> 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 like, I know I've been bugged. Like, is this her son? Um, I think about power all the time, right? In an individual, I, one of the lines I say very often when I talk to people is like, the individual police officer is the most powerful person the average American will ever interact with because they have the power to pull a gun out and kill you, right? right. Like, like without, <laughs> you know, yeah. not like a theoretical way, not a castle doctrine, like on the street can kill you, right? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. As about as powerful as it gets in interpersonal interaction, right? And so, and so it's not, and which again, which is one of the reasons why for me, it's not about, I don't write a lot of profiles of the cops who kill people. Not that I don't reach out to them, I do. I've, and I've interviewed a fair number of them. But because for me, I'm not searching for like what was inside that. For me, it's about power. The government killed someone. What accountability is necessary to the rest of us? What accounting should be there be? What transparency is required? And should we ask a million questions about it? The government killed somebody. We should ask every question if the government did it, right? And if one time it was wrong, that's a major crisis, right? Like if a single time the government executes someone for the wrong reason, major issue. And what and what and people don't like that. It feels charged, right? But when the government, when a police officer shoots and kills you, you didn't get a trial. You didn't have lawyers. You didn't have a. It's just in the moment. This person, the government decided you have to die, right? And I don't mean, like I said, I don't mean that in like a hysterical way at all. It's just what it is. No, so, it's actually accurate, yeah. And so, the, and so that's how I try to think about, like, power in these spaces. But I think one of the other things I would say is, and this is, and there's some difficulty here, and look, and this is on me. I'm not someone who says things and then, and then wants to get in the habit of going, all you just don't understand what I really meant to say, right? As a communicator, if you say something and people understand it, there was some failure in your communication, right? Um, which is one of the reasons I like to have these conversations. But there is some difficulty, I think, both in the Times piece and this broader conversation where we have both an in-group conversation happening while, a, while it's playing out in public, right? And so for me, a lot of my framing and the way I think about it is not about not aspiring towards fairness and objectivity, right? It's, it's about our internal conversations within newsrooms, not using, well, we've always done this this way and this is what objectivity means as a crutch to not do things differently and to not involve other people in the conversations, right? And so what I think about, so for example, uh, at my former employer, there's been a recent controversy about a long piece written about a Halloween party from two years ago (laughs) where a woman perhaps wore ironic blackface. Which we talked about in a previous episode, right. and it's now, crazy. Yes, go now, on. Now, that piece was objective journalism. Was it the right thing to do? Those are two different questions, right? And I'm sure that that newsroom had a conversation about, did we contact everyone? Have we heard from everyone? They had the objective conversation, but they did not have a conversation about, or clearly did not have an effective enough conversation about, was, should we do this? <laughs> Is this right? Is this useful? Is this driving towards whatever our core values are? And those core values are different publication by publication and journalist by journalist, right? But does this actually serve what we are supposed to be doing? I mean, I don't want you to talk out of school, but you don't work there anymore, so you can <laughs> toss bombs. Wouldn't be the- like, like, seriously, they're like putting out a potential fire. That was like, they use journalism to put out what they worried about was going to be a fire, right? Like, yes, like that's, and, and the, I, that's I, the common sense reading of this. And, and, I, and to be clear, I believe they believed it was the noble thing to do at the highest God, levels. it wasn't. Like, I, I mean that? Like, you know, like I don't, 
I genuinely, knowing these individuals, do not believe it was cynical, right? I, I, I believe they genuinely believed we're a newspaper. When someone confronts us with a problem, we write about it. And this is the utmost, like, you know, again, those are the decisions I would make. Those aren't the, that is not how I would advise them were I in the room or at the table, right? But again, for me, I just think if there is a table, and I think one of the core things I was attempting to argue in this piece was that if there is a table of decision makers, one, who is at that table? Because a lot of this is subjective, right? On any number of issues, the four of us are all going to be at a different point, right? And we're all good faith operators, genuinely trying to get it right. And we might make a decision that's for the most part, right? But try to get it right, but we're just different people, right? So, so for an institution or an organization, I mean, I always think about, you know, Obama used to say he wanted his cabinet to be like a, a team of equals. They'd all fight with each other and then the best stuff would happen, right? I think a newsroom should kind of be like that, right? Where not every person is like, yes, we're all in the same. No, there should be a, this is a terrible decision. No, let's do it the other. Because I want to hear that perspective of the other folks. The stakes are too high. I want do, one. But do you fear in some, I mean, I love the the sort of team of rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin idea in theory. I'm not sure how, how well it works in practice. And I think that, you know, that story that both of both you and Matt referenced, and the other thing about it is that even if that came to them a year ago, I don't know if the same thing would have happened because there's a certain forward motion in the culture, right? I mean, every time I opened uh, Twitter, there was somebody for historical blackface uh, being canceled, um, you know, canceled, but being raked over the coals, whether it was Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, it was all the Jimmys, right? Everybody had done some <laughs> thing in some comedy sketch. And that was that was at the tail end of that. That was just sort of this thing is happening. And, you know, I, what I fear and, and again, it's I don't know what it's like in that newsroom or, you know, a big newspaper newsroom now. But from a lot of the stuff that I've seen is that it's sort of the opinions are sort of solidifying in one direction. And it worries me a bit. And it's not I swear on my life. This is not an ideological point. I don't believe that, like, I, you know, it's too many lefties and they're too far left for me or something. It's just like I see the conversation, you know, as it pertains to, you know, a, a frequent guest in this po podcast, Barry Weiss, uh, who I've known just because she was an editor of mine when I wrote like book reviews for The Wall Street Journal. And the, how that internally happens and how Bennett gets kind of run out of town and the model you're describing seems pretty far from that. I think that, yes, it, it, although what I will say about the Bennett thing, and I only say this because I addressed it in the column, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and I do know a lot of the black staff members over there. I would never suggest to speak for them or fully understand, you know, but what I will say is like the column wasn't good. It wasn't well edited. The writing wasn't good. It was like, like I'm, I'm someone who does not believe. But that happens every day at the New York Times. It shouldn't. <laughs> oh, I know, but it does. Trust me. This is like part Trust of the problem, me. right? Like, Trust me. We would, if that didn't happen every day, Wes, we wouldn't have a podcast. If it happened every day, <laughs> perhaps the op-ed guy needs to get fired, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but then all those guys yeah. and gals need to get fired. It's the thing. Like, I, yeah, I'm not I, disagreeing I, with that statement, right? Like, I, if, like, at a, at a nuts and bolts, way the sentences were written, is this a productive means of advancing his argument? Is it overly charged in some places, undersubstantiated? And beyond that, and I said this in That my, wasn't really the objection, though, was it? That, the, that's what their statement was. They said. But, you know, do you believe that? I do. You I believe, believe that they were mad that it, was, it wasn't a wonderfully constructed argument. I, I believe that a significant part of this, and I say this as a Black journalist with a Black journalist girlfriend who talks about this stuff all the time, 
right? And, and all of these people are literal like house party friends, right? A lot of this is, why do these people get to write these crazy things with no rigor? And then when we want to write like anything, it's, hmm, is Juneteenth newsworthy? I don't know. But like, there is a frustration. At the times? Is that what happens at the times? Really? I don't know. I just, I, I, not look, just, not I'm just, outside I know, of it, so I, I can't I say. You don't, I know you I'm don't just, listen to the podcast regularly, but like <laughs> this last dispatch that we did, I mean, I don't know that anyone has more latitude and freedom seemingly than Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I don't know that anyone has like a longer leash than Nicole Hannah-Jones. Like she's stirred up a great deal of, oh gosh, she's stirred up a great deal (laughs) of controversy. And I think done a number of things that are perhaps running afoul of, not perhaps, they run afoul of the commitment to ethical journalism that the Times claims to stand by. And I haven't seen like any sort of public recriminations from the publication itself directed at her. And I don't know that I've heard any murmurs from the Times staff about her activities. I have, on the other hand, heard, you know, lots of public murmurs to get rid of someone who is a personal friend, Barry, who, you know, if we're talking about ethical journalism and, you know, a moral commitment um, and moral clarity, I don't know that anyone who's sort of more decidedly moral than her, she ought to be the kind of person that you want in a newsroom in like a West Lowry world but so I don't know. It's hard to figure out what's going on there. I, I think that too, because again, I'm not going to dodge any question. I will, I will continue with the with the caveats. Nicole is in like a dear personal friend. I know every black person in journalism. Right? Nicole's Nicole's a dear friend. <laughs> um, and, and so the but one of the things I would say though there or there though is that mm-hmm. I think the most among the most controversial things Nicole has done and said have not been in the pages of the New York Times, right? Among them. I'm not, not saying nothing, I'm not saying, but I think that the things that most of the people are the most mad about are not, other than the sentence in the 1619 project, the one sentence that everyone got mad about, the one. Most of the rest of the stuff is tweets. It's also, it's also just to interject, I, I, I don't dispute that, that yeah. uh, for, the, for the moment, but it's also that her reaction to criticism thereof. Um, which happens on Twitter for sure, but like it's also get reaction Twitter. to an institutional thing, um, which I don't. I, I don't think that she bathed herself in glory. And, and, and to be clear, the big objection recently to to, to Barry because I was sort of find something uh, was a tweet also. Well, but that was a tweet about her colleagues, right? I, Nicole Hannah Jones tweets about Barry all the time. Sure, mm-hmm. I find it all so silly, and I guess I just don't work in that world. I, I, so. I hear that. I think I think it's like trying to get back to to like meld the thing I was saying with kind of that counterpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Like, is what I was getting to also is, and I think I said this in the column, and I believe this, I actually don't think the Washington Post and New York Times should basically ever have elected officials writing op-eds, no matter who they are. Like, I don't actually we'd, believe... We'd agree on that point. And to me, that's a moral position. You already have a massive platform in our, in our public discourse. Sure. No, I'm giving you unedited, you know, like, that if yeah, Tom yeah, Cotton yeah. wants to come out for shooting people in the streets, uh, he's got to tell it to Maggie Lerman or whomever, and they can, you know, like, that, that I, and to me, I see that as a, what is the right thing for our institution to be doing versus the wrong thing for it to be doing, and it's not about the specifics. Tom Cotton should, that op-ed shouldn't happen because we shouldn't be handing the op-ed to partisan political actors 
for whatever, you know. Sure, I totally agree. And of course they don't write them either. But um, and, and you're putting your bylines, you, you don't run you something by by in the first place. Yeah, yeah. you don't, <laughs> they have to write the damn thing. But the other, the, the thing that I would say to that is just to, to sharpen the point a little bit is that I want to hear that objection when Bernie Sanders writes something for the paper too. Um, and that doesn't happen, you know, because it is an ideological point. It is because it's Tom Cotton. It is, you know, Barry Weiss is, and, and I hate to come back to her, and it's like, the thing is, it, it, you know, it corrupts in so many ways because you're friends with Nicole Anna Jones and, and, uh, and I'm friends with Barry. And, um, and again, it's not, it's not necessarily about politics, but Barry is somebody who is, a, you know, a young lesbian who left the Wall Street Journal because it was too pro-Trump. Right. This is not somebody who I think of as like my most reactionary friend. But it is it is always the thing of that. And I've pointed this out a number of times is that if Barry wrote all of those things, tweeted all of those things at The Wall Street Journal, would be fine. Nobody would care. But it's like you can't do that here. And that's the thing that I, f- I find str- strange about about The New York Times. And again, I say this as somebody who's outside it. I don't write for it, et cetera. Um, I, they wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have somebody like me. But I just I find it a weird kind of um Objection, because I think that if they were honest about it and they're like, you don't belong here, we don't like people who have your opinions here about X, Y and Z. I'd be fine with that. I mean, I'd be fine, like because because I think that the person would be like, OK, maybe I don't want to work here because these people have a totally different worldview than I do. Fine. But when it's kind of cloaked in this thing of like, eh, we don't like the language, we don't like the this, it's like, okay, you have to do that across the, across the board. You have to object to the Bernie Sanders piece that he just wrote with a... With a I haven't read and don't even know what that piece is. Yeah. I don't think any elected officials should be writing up this for anyone. Yeah, okay. Which is a line you had in there, and I, I didn't mean yeah. to bring it up because, like, it's pretty radical and kind of cool. Like, it's, it again, and that's what I'm getting at. Like, to me, that is a moral decision. If I run a publication, I'm not... Mm-hmm over my column inches, partisan hacks, to not have to put my questions ever, no matter who they are. And I think there's also, and getting back to the rigor thing I was saying, mm-hmm. what we also mm-hmm. all know is that some editor there saw Tom Cotton tweet and said, we haven't had a Republican on the page on this. Let's reach out to him. This yeah. was See, I, no I got no problem with that. I honestly got no problem with that. Like you're, you're an op-ed editor. You want to enliven the page, uh, especially the New York Times. You're like looking around like, Certainly, I know no conservative or Republican, <laughs> and I there is one who just said something that might be a yeah, little bit like yeah. uh, you know click clickbaity. If you, I mean, if or you knew a conservative, or, you wouldn't pick Tom Cotton. Yeah. That's, well, they, talk a good, they talk a good no. game about diversity over there. That seems like the sort of thing that you'd be interested. No, but actually, I want to address that. Uh, Boynihan is like I think you were overly dismissive, Wes, and, and you had a sentence about uh, people who are sort of hysterical talking about sure. the public square. That might have been unfair, but you know. Whatever. But it's like uh, that's always been a thing. That is a function that has been Mm -hmm. there for a long time. And if you were like sitting around and saying, I feel like I have a sense of responsibility to moderate a debate in the broad public square arena, uh, Zocalo in the West Coast term, um, of people who are talking about things and who would otherwise disagree, but we're going to find a way to talk about these things. Um, a couple of the people who I would include, if that was my goal, yeah. and it's not that reason, and I'm not in a decision-making place there necessarily. We do different things at the fifth column. But like, if that was my broad goal as an institution, it would definitely include Tom Cotton, who 
to be clear, I loathe more than any sitting U.S. senator. I think that's a universal feeling, yeah. Josh Hawley's been trying. He's been trying to, like, climb up the greasy fucking slope of this thing. But pole. Like, like it's, it's fine. Pole, thank you. Whatever. Slope. Greasy slope. <laughs> but, but I think that it's an important question. Like, should there be places like that that do that thing? And if there is... Who gets to be in that place? And in my conception, as someone, again, who is probably more ideologically against Tom Cotton than any other sitting U.S. senator, like, yes, because he's a player in that world and his views are important and and resonant and have some purchase with the president. So should there be West Lowry? Damn it! Finally, um, should there be should there be media places for that? Should there be a public square that includes these people who Matt Welch might find to be assholes, but who are people who have power, um, who are sitting U.S. senators, one of one hundred people. It's not like a big club, um, and who also represent points of view and are talking about especially in this in, in this case about things that are like live public discussions sure. should there be places like that and is the media should the media be that place yeah and, well and, and should the new york times op-ed page specifically be that place? because right? there's like patience right. for that right you know like and I, and I think that that becomes and i think that becomes part of the push the back and forth in the debate right and i think that look you know, Tom Cotton did a speech about the other day about D.C. statehood um, and how it shouldn't happen because none of these people, he's not the, they aren't real humans people, that was someone else. But he said, he was talking about how our borders are weird and we all work for the federal government. He didn't write that in the New York Times op-ed page and I heard about it. It was all over the public debate, right? Yeah. Why? Because he's a senator. He can go on the floor of Congress and say whatever he wants, whatever he wants, and everyone knows what it is. He's got Facebook pages and Twitter accounts with Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers, right? One of the goals, I think, of a space where you are curating the public debate, right? Which I believe is what the New York Times op-ed page says is its mission. Maybe not in those words, but that's the broad. I, I do think there can be a frustration at times where it feels as if the same players have access to that space time and time again. And again, if those players themselves are very powerful independently... Again, I think to me that raises the bar of the rigor that's required, right? That look, I actually expect everything to be locked down in a column. If I'm going to give column inches of my newspaper to a senator to go unchallenged, there better not be a single thing close to a mistake in that. Versus the person on the street who just has a really interesting idea is an under like I guess for me at least. Again, going back to the way I think about things with power, and I, and I mean it when I say that's a lot of what animates my thinking on this. Mm-hmm. That. I do think the media should play a role at evening some of that power out. Tom Cotton is among one of the most powerful people in this debate already. He's a senator with the ear of the president. He can say anything he wants in public and the whole world hears it. The, the columnist, the column they had, and it was controversial on the right, they had a column uh, by a very prominent abolitionist activist in New York. And, and, and the headline, I think, was, yes, we literally want to abolish prisons. And, I, and by Miriam, and it's an excellent call. She is a very well-respected activist in this space, right? If she is among the leading abolitionists. I might argue the New York Times op-ed page probably should have had a column from her a long time ago. She lives in New York. She's one of, like, she's one of those prominent figures on a remarkably interesting issue. 
And that's someone who the average Times reader might not other, ever otherwise hear from. To me, that's curating the public debate, right? Hmm. And, and, and but, but beyond all that, though, because again, kind of in the context of what I said, what I was trying to lay out in the column, right, is that all of these things are subjective decisions either way. If any of the four of us, if, you know, each one of us would run the New York Times op-ed page a little Sure. Right? And we would, right? And again, yeah, yeah, yeah. we would do our best. We would have genuine beliefs about how to do it, right? One man wouldn't do his best, but yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't even show up. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a series, all of these things. There's not some one right answer or one wrong answer. There's a bunch of different ways you could try to do it. And I think one of the sure. key things is how do you have a bunch of different types of people who at least get one input into that? Right. Like at least have some. Mm -hmm. And what we know historically and contemporarily is that the higher up you go in these media organizations, the more alike all of the people making the decisions are. And I'm not going to say that there's not some ideological component to that, too, but there's unquestionably a racial component to that. And and I think that that and and on issues like this specifically, when we are talking about race, whether it should be about race or not, whatever. this is one of the key issues in our society that a New York Times has to deal with, that a Washington Post has to deal with, that a Wall Street Journal. There should probably be a black person in the room <laughs> when big decisions like, are we calling this comment from the president racist or not, is made. Why? Because I, because it's a subjective decision, right? And if what we want is coverage that feels accurate to the broadest swath of people possible, it can't all be the sensibilities of one set of people. Right. Because- but which black person? <laughs> because you said earlier, and honestly, you said earlier that that we are not, and it was a good point. Like, it's not a monolith. There's uh-huh. there's no monolith at all. It's even possible. Yeah. Right. Because flip it, it would never be like, well, thank God, there's one white person here to give us that. There's like nine of them every time. There's never a one white person in the room. Right. Like it's like. <laughs> but but there's also not but there's also not a blanket assumption, although I'm encountering it more and more frequently, that all white people think the same. Sure. No, I, I think there it's it's more frequently asserted that black people think in a uniform way. In fact, I've heard prominent people suggest that there is an appropriate way to think if you are in fact politically black. Otherwise, <laughs> you're not in fact politically black. I'm not gonna name names. I'm just saying some people believe things like that. Controversial tweet. But I think that's a very good point, though, right? Again, how many times is there one black person in the room and they go, so now we're going to turn to Jerome, our black friend. What do the blacks think about this? What, what does the black community want? And that never happens. It's never, let's turn to our one white friend, Mike, and ask him how it's, but you're, it doesn't happen. But you're still prescribing a circumstance where you turn to black people to get the black perspective on something while acknowledging that perspectives don't actually work that way, sure. even if there's a... But, a plurality of support for something amongst black people. Like that's not actually the way opinions work. They're, they're still individual. And it, I'll put a point on this because I know we're approaching the end and I actually would love to have you perhaps frame your answer in this way. The, sure. the ultimate fundamental question here when it comes to like moral clarity in, in journalism seems to be whose morality is it? And I think the question has been posed before I wonder if you have a sharp response to it, because my own vantage point is, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that everyone in journalism would agree that actual objectivity in a fundamental sense is impossible because we have subjective vantage points. But the question becomes, is a pivot from there, or at least from that caricature, because that's probably not what most people mean when they say objectivity Mm -hmm. in journalism, although most readers do. 
is the pivot perhaps to a place where you're embracing the actual complexity of the job. Like the, the fact that you could lean into that complexity and perhaps if you're surveying debates, commit yourself not to both sides of sure. them, but to helping folks understand all the vital shit that both sides miss, let's say, and the degree to which the sides are ostensibly talking about one thing while everyone else actually claims that something else is the thing that is most important. Like, we're not debating police shootings if we're actually debating whether or not kneeling is patriotic. <laughs> like, this yeah. is a stupid fucking distraction. Yeah. And one could write that story, or they could say, for example, well, the NFL is racist, and that's why they won't let people kneel on the field. You know what I mean? No, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think what I would say in response to all of that, right, is that I have not, I would not actually prescribe a very drastic change in how much of journalism itself operates currently. What I would prescribe is that journalism rise to the ideal, to what is already its stated set of ideals, right? That what, what I would argue, what, what I would suggest, again, is that there are a lot of cases where theoretically we are vowed to be fair and hear all these, but because of blind spots that can be structurally built into our newsroom. We don't know anyone who lives in that neighborhood, so we haven't found that guy. We all think this type of thing about it again, and this is not all conscious, like it's subconscious. It's like, and, and to be clear, and that's not to prescribe, I mean, I do argue this explicitly in terms of like, I want more black people in these jobs, unquestionably. That's not to suggest that all black people think the same. And what is also true in a racialized world, there are aggregate opinions. We do, we do know that a majority of a certain set of people believe this type of thing or are likely to have had this type of experience. Well, this, uh, we, we just know that, right? And, and so it's not to say you're trying to fill boxes or check them, but it's that if no one in the room has, if no one in the room, the example I always use, right? When there's a controversial police shooting, and no one in the room has ever been pulled over for no reason, nope, that might change the way and how you go at covering that story. If no one in the room has ever felt like they were the victim of racism, whether they were or not, right, and not just in that scenario, but in any, that might change the way an institution covers it. How many follow-up questions you ask, what you push on, whether this is a one-person story or a seven-person story, whether, like, and I think that, so again, a newsroom, which has to be all things to all people in some ways, which is what like the New York Times, the Washington Post would ascribe to me, right? I think it's really important that, look, when we're covering the Muslim ban, that a single Muslim had some say in how, this, in how our coverage played out. Why? They might have a perspective that's really important in this conversation, right? Like that a single immigrant or a single person whose family member is undocumented, and not just because their opinion might be different, they might literally have information we don't have. Well, actually, the thing that the, the, the thing that DEA is doing is X, Y, Y, because their experiences might be different. And I think that's really important. It, it, yeah, Wes, and just a, a small point on this, and I think that this is something I've complained about a lot. And I think that your prescription of this, um, a part of it I find problematic and it, it, for this reason, is that when you focus on race solely, you can do that by saying, I presume that people, you know, who are members of, of this race, let's just say black people, will have been pulled over, will have been, you know, because it's Tim Scott, it's everybody, right? The problem with that is it allows you to never have a reporter from East New York. And because if everybody who's black has had that experience, every black reporter I've ever worked with went to Harvard. 
Everyone I ever worked with went to Columbia. All of them had upper middle class families. I mean, you know, Camille's fighting with, uh, you know, uh, Torre on, on Twitter. He went to Andover, <laughs> Phillips Exeter, one of these absurdly <laughs> expensive schools, right? I mean, the kids in East New York, and I think of this more in a class way, because I, I can be a bit of a class warrior sometimes, are utterly fascinating. They're experiencing shit that I am two miles away and have no idea about. You know who also has no idea about it? The, some of the reporters that I've worked with who went to Harvard. Of course. And they may not look like me, and they might have had the experience that Tim Scott had, but I think that when you solely look at through, through the prism of race, and I'm not saying you're solely doing that, but I'm just saying yeah. white people do that a lot, because when you say, when somebody comes into the room, right, it's an awkward, weird thing, but they turn to the guy and say, hey, fill in the black guy's name, what do you think about this? But that is something that has been created. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, which, what was the name you said? I, said I, I used a name when I did that. What did you say? What did you say? Which yeah, one? I think I said Jerome, but I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't you. say that. Um, no, I would never say that. I would say Steve. Hi, Steve. Um, It'd be worse. But the thing about that is that is something that is created by the modern kind of left of center frame about race. It is like we have to have X number with representation and we need black people have a particular view of things. So it's no surprise to me that somebody turns to the black journalist in the room and says, what do you think about it? That's why you're here. Well, and that is condescending. And I've, I've always opposed it for it, that reason. It is very condescending. Uh, what, what I, but what I will say, though, is, right, that, look, I wish race were not a factor in our society, but I didn't construct the society. And it is right. And I can aspire that that not be true. But it is true. Um, and we could aspire to make it more of a factor in some instances, too. One could, right? But, but it is, at, at base level, a true thing that exists, right? And we can debate exactly where that line is. It's a true thing that exists in our mm -hmm. society, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and one thing that is true, though, is that even among those reporters, right, to be Black in America does broadly typically include some sets of experiences and also proximity to other people. I have not been to prison. I have an uncle who has me. And I got a lot of pieces written about me about how I grew up in the suburbs and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, that the reality is by the- How nature, dare you? But then by the nature of being <laughs> Black in America, I have approximately, even my friends, my social circles, my COVID, my Facebook page is a bunch of Black people I know talking about their dead aunts and uncles. Every day, someone I know has a loved one who dies. And like, no is relative. It's a reporter I met once, but I know a bunch of Black people. Right. And so and what we know is that black people are being disproportionately killed by COVID, that there is a proximity to an experience by the nature of being black in America. That is different. Right. And I'm not saying that every individual black person takes on all of those. But if I'm hiring 800 people, right, as The Washington Post is a newsroom of, if I'm hiring a thousand people like the one way to try to fill in some of those blind spots would be to make sure that in one of the most obvious ways you can be representative, to be representative that way. Not to assume that every black person checks the same box or wants the same, but if you got two of them, guess what? You're probably missing some of the boxes. If you got 200, you're probably hitting all of them. And again, there's no newsroom in America that's not checking all the white guy boxes. You got a white guy of every flavor, right? Very few newsrooms in America have multiple flavored black people. And I, do you think do you think that's because of active in the systemic thing is 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 a problem in some ways? No, no, I know because it's like you take it far back so far, and it's like I I I understand why all these things happened and why we landed where we landed. 
But do you think that in newsrooms that you've uh, worked in, and um, and the reason I ask that is because there's a line in your um, uh, column in which you say that, um, basically that, and I can't find it uh, right here, but basically that Black journalists that you know have been shut down and explicitly told that, you know, they can't report or shouldn't, you know, I can't remember these, I'll, I'll find the line. Sure. Um, but I think you know generally what I'm talking but, about. But it's, but yeah, it's the idea that very often when Black people kind of express themselves fully, they can very often from their white bosses be clamped down. And, and one thing yeah, I- it's, And just to get be clear, is black journalists are hired, are hired and told sometimes explicitly what you just said, uh, that we can only thrive if we don't dare to be our full selves. Um, does that happen to you? I mean, because uh, oh, I, I mean, because and you're black. I, I didn't say that. I know that I'm a black journalist and that that happens, right? Like, and so- But it seems like you're connecting the two there. It, it's impossible to not when it's you. Right. It's, it's one of the sure. no, no, that's what I'm asking. I don't I mean, I don't mean this in a condescending. Yeah. I'm just wondering if that's happened to you and you believe that it's because of race. Because that seems to be the insinuation in the piece, like pretty, pretty clearly. The, the way I would frame it. And, I, and, and this, I think, was the framing of the piece. Right. That that whiteness is normative when you're in a, in a majority white space where the power brokers are white and they have shared experiences and they have that. Look, I got colleagues. I got colleagues who tweet all time about how they're going to their 19th Ruth Springsteen concert and the fish lyrics and all this other stuff. Right. I don't, you know, I'm like Thunder Road was fine, but I don't know any other Springsteen and like, uh, like Wes, oh. I'm not black and I'm on your side. So sure. continue. I, <laughs> 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 and I don't even mean this in like any, but like I might go to the Kanye West concert. My buddy Josh, who was here before, we've, we've been to a Kanye West concert. Right. Like, and and I might have met, and I have unquestionably in scenarios had colleagues when I come to the Washington Post the next day, go, oh, well, what was that thing you were doing last night? That seemed a little, and again, I'm not saying they're poor intention. It's, none of this is about intention. None of this, and, and that's not even like an egregious example. That's not the example I'm thinking of when I'm writing that column that way, to be clear. I'm just trying to exemplify this a little bit, right? That when the way a person of the Washington Post behaves is Ben Bradley, a white guy, that is going to be functionally different than the way a lot of other people might behave, right? And again, in aggregate, that is going to start breaking down along, I mean, along gender and racial lines. And, and it's going to start changing too when people like Ben Bradley die out, well, right? Black, right? But, but I think country gets more diverse. And, and D. Beck last time. Dean is black. Yeah. Dean is black. And but Dean is also one guy. I, I think the thing about race is it's a shortcut. And you're, you're explaining the various ways in which it's a shortcut to try and understand all the various things about someone's experiences. But it's also a cultural norm. And one question that I, at some later date, would love to explore with you is the degree to which, when we are thinking about like racial dynamics in the context of disparities, it might also be appropriate to consider not only the race of the person who's acting upon someone or acting in, in some context, like the doctor who's interacting with a black person, but the black person who's interacting with the doctor. Unfortunately. And the degree to which they, they bring their experience with them and their experience may actually affect the outcome. And that would certainly potentially be informative in criminal justice context. When you're going into a courtroom as a black person, if the outcome is different because of your blackness, it could have something to do with your blackness. Not in a race sense, sure. but in a cultural it, 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 sense, it, it, the only sense that actually matters. Your experience. I mean, briefly, I mean, one, I think that's a fascinating space to discuss, right? I, I'll never forget the Boston, Boston ACLU sued the Boston police a few years ago. I'm pretty sure it was in Boston. Mm. And it was mm-hmm. over, um, 
And, and it was, I think it was part of the stop and frisk lawsuit. But the Supreme Court of Massachusetts wrote in their opinion that a black man running from the police was not, in fact, grounds to stop them because the police had harassed so many black people that it was an eminently reasonable thing for a black man in Boston to do upon sight of a police officer to just run away. That like that, 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 and that is in fact no longer met the qualification for probable cause. That they could not come arrest you because you ran from them because for so because in so many scenarios they, and and that sounds flagrantly unconstitutional <laughs> for the record. It was like a, I just want to put but, that out. But there. I just want to add that that was when uh, Wes Lowry was on the Massachusetts Supreme Court uh, yeah, writing decisions. So I, I mean, look, you should add that detail, Wes. I mean, it's important. But it was the first thing I thought of when you said that, right? Because it's a sense of right, like the lives we've lived and the lives we collectively live in aggregate do inform the way we interact with the rest of the world, right? It does, right? And and so I, I think that that, I unquestionably think that's a factor. Um, and I think that, and, and I will say, and I think one of the places where there's space here, and I've, I've loved this conversation, I think, you know, like I guess I'm always happy to do it because I, I think, like, one, on a lot of these things, I think there's a lot less space than we might think there is on some of them. Um, but two, you know, it's like iron sharpens iron, right? I'm always happy to talk through stuff because I'm smarter now than I was at the beginning of this. I do think that I do believe kind of at a fundamental, you know, I, I am since African-American studies 101, like relatively a critical race theorist. I, I do think that in, in the American context, race is one of the formative things about how we experience the world. And I think that we have a difficulty at times seeing the diff- it, it, it fully disembodying ourselves and going, this must be what this is like for someone else. I, I believe that, right? Um, I think that, Uh, And I I think that that, in fact, is some of the core of the public disagreements that happen around these things, right, is how traditional is race to your perception and understanding of the world, right? And and what I'll say is I think that there are not necessarily conscious, but there are self-interested reasons for both sides to not see the reasonableness of the other side, right? Like if, if, in fact, race is definitional, if you're someone that, if you don't want to believe that, believing that would require changing your entire perception of the world, right? It would actually like be pretty, like if you don't, if you believe racism is a problem of individual bad people and that broadly everyone is good, everyone kind of understand each other, that this is just a construct we've social, like, socially imposed and suddenly you're like, no, no, this is actually formative to like the average human in a real like, deep way. That's a pretty jarring concept and vice versa. Right. And vice versa. If you believe that like that race is a formative definitional thing, everyone is not is not seeing the forest for the trees. Right. Every conversation is. But this isn't what this is about. It's actually about this. And so, again, I think people of good faith who've read different books, who've been socialized different ways. Right. Can come to a point where, like, they're never going to be able to (laughs) because it's too it's too completely world altering to have to flip to the other side of that. Right. One way or the other. Yeah. You know, and I want to like, Camille, but but quickly was, I just see, here's my issue with that. And I think that you're right. I mean, there's actually probably not a syllable uh, in that, that I, that I disagree with. I worry about the, you two are a critical race theorist. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. Huh? I don't, I mean, took us that long to discover. I've never told you how much I love CLR, CLR James. So we can talk about that later. Um, You know, (laughs) Trinidadian Marxists are, are my jam, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> the thing that that worries me 
And the worries me about that is I fear that we're in a place now that debate of this kind is narrowing. And mm-hmm. I know that you took mm-hmm. a, you didn't really take a shot at, at Taibbi and you, you linked to his and you said some people sure. are getting a bit hysterical about this stuff. But that was a broader thing about journalism. I mean, specifically about race. And I just want you to take on this because um, everybody that I know who has even a slightly kind of, you know, different, you could even say heterodox view about these things that are sort of average, a lot of average people would think are terrified of thinking them publicly mm-hmm. and are are worried about this time that we're in, in which the things that you're talking about, Matt's talking about, Camille's talking about, these things that are, that are you know, sort of criminal justice reforms, no-knock raids, except the things that kill Breonna Taylor. And then in the culture, friends of mine who don't follow this debate in the way that we do are saying, why, they're taking a Golden Girls episode off the air now? That's bizarre. In all of these things where it feels like slightly Stalinist that we're trying to cleanse all of these television shows. They, to me, that debate is in, in, incredibly um, distracting in a lot of ways from right in this moment. You can, I'm not saying you can't have a debate. You can have any debate you want no, at any time. But right at this moment, yeah. when there's so many things to point to that are, you know, in this kind of like people, friends of mine talking about white fragility, and I'm just like, oh, this is really not helpful in a lot of, a lot of ways for me. I mean, I might disagree with that, but as a critical racer. But do you think that some of these, <laughs> some of these things, a fellow critical racer, <laughs> some, some of these things that are out there, and, you know, I know that you disagree with people like Taibbi, and I'm sure, you know, Camille and, and John McWhorter and people um, that uh, write about this from a different perspective, do they have a point in some way? In some way, I mean, would you concede any bit of it so, so, that that is a bit of a, a narrowed debate at this point? Uh, so, can can I file in right behind? Please, one I in cut you off. Very loaded question, and give you give you one one more refinement on mm-hmm. it. It would, and, and we'll call this the last one because we've already held you long. <laughs> yeah, sorry about this. No, I, 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 I don't know how much worse the fireworks yeah, yeah. get. You're like the Patty Hearst of your neighborhood right now. I'm sorry. You're like in a closet. The SLA is holding you. People can't actually see that. But he's had to move from room to room. Yeah. He's in a bathtub now. Yeah, he's in a bathtub now. under a sheet. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly, he doesn't have a shirt on. Yeah. And she did not approve with us. <laughs> it's, real so, it's the best bizarre. part. It's fine. That's the best part. Looks I good like now. it. So filing in behind Moynihan, putting, putting a, a slightly sharper point on this. The related concern is that there are things that black people can say and white people aren't allowed to observe. There are claims that black people can make that white people aren't allowed to dispute. This is an assertion from white fragility, for example. If a black person says to you, that's racist, intention doesn't matter. They've accused you of it. It is so. Sure. Full stop. And some people don't like that. Some people have problems with essentialism of, of the sort that creates universes where there are are truths that cannot be challenged and i think this this is these two things are related yeah, hopefully no, i haven't completely muddled the question you asked no that's no it's yours is a better they're definitely related i mean i'm gonna, I'm gonna try to address both of them because i think they're interesting points in both spaces but they're definitely related right so you can see something that was said earlier right i think a lot of the public conversation is dumb full stop right like like and, and so I, I, there was I, there was a viral tweet the other day where it was like, May, colon, burn a police station down, abolish the police, and then June, colon, okay, we listened to your concerns, and the Hamburglar is now black, 
right? And it's like, yeah, and sometimes, like, the conversation of course. misses that, like, none of the black people asked for a review of the Golden Girls. No one in the streets, not a single person. The streets are not calling for that. And maybe one. Maybe as soon as I say that, like, you're gonna, someone's going to be able to find one person who actually, but, like, no one can. Well, I, Ice Cube would be mad. Did you say Ice Cube if you did? He'd be mad if Rue McClanahan was Jewish. <laughs> then it'd be like, what a, let's get rid of her. Who's <laughs> just a straight anti-Semite. Let's just yeah, no, put sure. that in there. It's crazy. <laughs> I didn't, because I, I love America's Most Wanted. I mean, and Death Certificate are two great records, but continue, Wes, sorry. But like, you know, so so I, what I will say is, like, much like the Kaepernick example that was given earlier, right? Where the public discourse among people who publicly discourse during our days, which is about 2% of the population sit, is very often, very, like, even on something that there are literally thousands, if not millions of people in the streets, and what we are mm. talking about is nothing like what they are talking about. Yeah, right? like, yeah. like a very fundamental level, right? In a way that, and I do think that sometimes the like dumbness of our discourse can be projected onto those people, right? Again, no one in the streets mm-hmm. is like, golden girls, get rid of, like, you know, Zero people. In fact, most of the black people, this is crazy. We love that episode. Like, 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 it's. Wes, tell the truth. Black people love Dukes of Hazard. It's a true story. Like, it's not even, like, like, it's, these are cold classics in these. No dispute. Like, it's not, and so there's like a real, and so I do think that sometimes our conversation, and what I also say is, and I think this is true of any people who are in a hyper in group about anything. The thing we care about is always the most important thing in the world, and the whole world is ending if it does. Like we see this with like campus speech stuff. We see this with like, and I'm not saying they're not real, like high-minded things to be debated about this. And also, it like literally doesn't matter. Like in a real way, today, to anyone who's reading or writing, right? It doesn't matter if Yale renames itself. It doesn't matter if one activist at the University of Michigan got some. No, it might matter to the professor gets kicked. Off. And I'm get. I'm not someone who doesn't. I read all these things, engage in all of them, and also. I do think that sometimes we can all get a little end of the worldy about like five people all in our living rooms tweeting at each other. Now it's the end of the world because this guy just said, and it's like, guys, like we're all sitting in our apartments. Like the world's not ending. It's fine. Free speech still exists. <laughs> right. What I also say to that also is like, I, I do think that there is a, I think there's a lot of conversation to be had and I wouldn't suggest that I know where the lines are on all of this or that I wouldn't assert that I am all knowing any of this. Right. Um, but there is a there is a debate, and every society has to define what's acceptable discourse, what isn't, right? And those are lines that move, and that movement is at times going to be painful and stressful for people, right? Like we've seen this with all the like jerky dudes who've gotten fired. Oh, I guess it's not okay to like feel up the intern anymore. Well, that that was a movement of a societal line, and that was difficult. And there was a lot of, by the way, gnashing of teeth at the time, even just a few years ago. All these social justice warriors. And I'm not saying there's never been any over, but what I'm saying is that like, that was a largely good movement of that line. And at the time there was a lot of people insisting it was terrible and it was the end of the world, right? I think that as we become a more multicultural society, which we know we are demographically, right? We're gonna have more people who speak up about more things that affect them and what they think. People who have literally not had sources of power before, have not been sources of power, have not had seats at these tables, are now gonna say things like, hey, actually, I really don't like it when you refer to me this way. And I, don't, I think that there's a valid space in our public space to have those debates without it being, well, now that we can't say the racist thing, the world is ended. Now, I'm not saying that 
that it's all or nothing. I'm not saying there's not room for pushback on that. I'm not saying, but I do think that sometimes we imbibe a little too much gravitas to things that I think are kind of natural societal conversations, right? We're a group full of a bunch of different people and we're going to make different decisions, right? And that, and our generation's decisions are going to be different than our kids and our grandkids and our, and that that process is in fact what democracy looks like. And, and, the, and the act of democracy doing itself is not a crisis. I, I would right? say that the problem is, my problem that I have with that is that it's 2% of people, 1% of people, whatever it is. Those two per- percent of people, and when we talk about race, we often use this phrase, have a disproportionate amount of power. So for instance, the Washington Post writing about some women going to a Halloween um, you know, I mean, that's the, that's her search result forever. Um, and she lost her job, et cetera. And I feel like in a way that, you know, a lot of the people that were saying stuff about this three, four years ago, were the canaries in the coal mine, that it's gotten to a point that the, the kind of cancel culture type thing that we talk about in the show sometimes. And I know that the response to that is like, ah, it's just not a big deal. It's just a few people here and there. But I think that there's, there's a kind of elasticity to the things like racism, that people who are well-meaning people, and you've said this yourself during this podcast, that don't understand when those lines have moved. Of course. And that right now, it's we're in a moment that has a bit of a pitchfork feel to it. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I wish it were feeling up the internally, because that, we can all agree, is reprehensible and probably criminal too. Yeah. But I think it's a little, it's gone, it's gone a little further than that. No, and I hear that. And like I said, I do think there are some legitimate, I think there's like a real legitimate like conversation to be had in that space about where these lines are, about what is in fact unforgivable, what is forgivable. You know, like what, what I'll also say is like, I'm largely a person who believes that like all humans are terrible and like- <laughs> We agree on that, yeah. <laughs> things up and, we, and there needs to be some forgiveness, but also someone, and this is my like extra Baptist upbringing, like you gotta say you're sorry before you get forgiven, right? There's some of that for me too, right? You gotta, and I think that sometimes there's a challenge in our public discourse where like you have to double down and insist you did nothing wrong and that's the only way out of it. And I think that- I'm the type of person I like to think who would be very open to someone being able to be like, look, I was totally wrong about that, that specific thing. Here's what I learned. And then we're able to, I know that's not how the internet always works. Like I said, I also think that some of this is about the democratization of power. Suddenly a bunch of people have a little kernel of power when previously just us, the four people in these boxes had the power. And now like 500 people could get together and get all of us fired if they wanted to, right? That wasn't necessarily true previously, right? I and, don't like that kind of power shift, though. Yeah, that well, you have to make an you have to make a denunciation about somebody that is so toxic that their lives end, rather than just be like, "I'm better than him." You never like that power <laughs> shift because we're the people who are losing a kernel of the power, right? Well, I just want to lose in a fair way. And the people write columns are disproportionate. You know, like the again, the people to be upset are like the people who have always had some platform in power and are losing. But don't you wonder at some level in this moment, like the last month has been crazy. You can't, you can't think that it hasn't been crazy. It's been crazy. It can be crazy good sometimes, but it can also be crazy shitty sometimes. Like there's a new club. Holy shit. This club got real big all of a sudden and it like fits in my hand. Super good. Oh, look, I don't like that person. Yeah. What right? was that? Like, that's Joins. happening too. That was like, there's a special new <laughs> noise about, about yeah. wielding the club. Matt's, what are you Matt's talking about, drinking. Bam Bam? What are you talking about? <laughs> Bam Bam is talking about that 
People people perceive how power is wielded at every moment. Sure. And a lot of the moments, in fact, I mean, Wes is talking about a lot of things that have happened in newsrooms. Sure. And I look back, and, and I've, I've been looking uh, in, in the past couple of days for other reasons about some of the disputes here in newsrooms. And a lot of them are like personnel disputes. I didn't get promoted here this person did. I expected this thing to happen. There's this pay disparity, which is not to say that these things aren't, aren't real or like aren't material. They absolutely are. But they could also be like workplace disputes. But there's this swelling club in a hand that if I can make this thing be like institutional systemic racism, boom, right? Like there's a due process concern that I wonder and I worry a little bit, uh, Wes, in your depiction of it. Like, yeah, you know, sometimes things can get exaggerated. Well, I think in the last month we've seen a lot of sometimes get exaggerated, right? Like we've seen people see a way to short circuit the due process of determining whether someone is involved with a pattern and practice or individual determinations of bad conduct or whether they just like did something wrong in a moment and there are opportunistic people. And what I worry about right now very specifically is that people as whether they're in that position themselves, but like are are lending their sympathies towards like, it doesn't really matter. Um, we are going to make a better society at the end of it. So the due process elements of that do not matter. I think the eggs broken all in a way matter. It's not just like, oops, we did this. So now it like, but it's all about, I don't think the ends justify the means like that. I don't, I don't believe that. Right. I, I do think that individuals and what they actually do, they act that the facts and the truth matter fundamentally. Right. Um, and one thing I would note is a big subtext of my piece in the Times, and in fact, I argue explicitly about the perception of objectivity, and I note the amount of time we spend talking about reporters' tweets and whatnot, right, is that, like, no, I don't think Nicole Hannah Jones should get run out of her job because she sends a tweet that someone gets mad about. Right? Like, like, there's Nor do any of us. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> like, in, in that is a level of, like, what actually matters what is the actual due process here? If there's even a legitimate complaint about whatever it is. And also, what matters? If I employ you to work for my newspaper, what's more important to me? The things you do and put in my newspaper or the fact that today you sent a tweet that was a little off and a lot of people are mad and look, half of the people are deliberately misreading it. The other half are reading it, however, because you worded it poorly or whatever, whatever it is, right? We've all stepped on it that way on the internet, right? When one direction or the other. The... I don't think people should lose their jobs over that stuff. Like as a general, like as a, as a like blanket rule for the most part, right? I, I actually think that a lot of the noise that happens in public, and this is one of my concerns with the ideal of objectivity versus the perception of objectivity, right? It's perceived that at, at one time a Breitbart reporter was coming at me because there's the very controversial activist Sean King, who I'm sure you all are aware of. Uh, in Black Lives Matter spaces. Yeah, he wants to ban white Jesus. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Um, he, he, um, one way of putting it. <laughs> and, and I gotta be honest, I, I'm a bigger fan of Black Jesus as anyone. I literally want like a room in my home full of Black Jesus depictions. I just <laughs> like, I don't, 
Right. Like, I mean, like, I have, one yeah. day we'll have a whole room my own. You, you Jesus like Black Jesus with the dreadlocks? That's the one. So, even I was like, okay, I don't know that, I don't know that this is the fight for these people. <laughs> yeah. That said, at one point, him and I had an exchange on Twitter. It was literally completely lighthearted. Like, I think I had tweeted about a Beyonce song I liked, and he was like, yeah, I really like that song too. And I got like Breitbart write-ups about how I was too close to the activists because we, and it was like a completely <laughs> innocuous, like, like literally like, yo, I love this song. And like someone on the internet going, yeah, I love that song too. Like completely. And, and it was, a, and what a lot of these folks do, the bad faith actors in any number of sides, I get them primarily from one side, but like the, but what they do is they play by the rule. They hang us by our own rope. They play by the rules we've set. If you can, if this reporter expresses any bias, if you can suggest they're too close to someone, then they're completely disqualified from doing their job, right? And so I have these campaigns out here saying, I'm too close to the activists because we had an interaction, because we were on a panel once together where we took a photo next to each other, and because me and Sean King like Beyonce, right? And like suddenly I, like, and I think that that's something that I think newsrooms sometimes just have to be more aware of in terms of, like, Judge me by the objectivity and fairness of my work. 100%. And if there's a complaint about my work, let's correct it. Like, let's, I'm not to get a hold of. I'm not like, let's figure it out, right? But don't say, well, because you got this Twitter riff, now you can never, because the reality is, no one's saying I can't have political opinions. It's that I got to hide them from the readers. And if I ever, just, like, if they ever slip out, suddenly you can't be a reporter. I mean, honestly, I think that's exactly I, right. And I, I mean, I've gone even so far to annoy people and say that, I don't care who funds a scientific study. Is it falsifiable? Can you recreate it mm-hmm. and do it twice? It's mm-hmm. like if the tobacco companies do it, if the Girl Scouts do it, you know, the same thing is true of Wes Lowry's reporting. I don't care if you talk to Sean right. King, provided you're giving me reporting that is accurate and real, and people are demonstrating that over and over again, and you're not making errors every time, or just like th- seeing it through a narrow. And look, by the way, if it's just bias of selection and bias of omission, people notice that. And they say, okay, well, that's what we're getting here. That's that's fine to me. And also journalism is mm-hmm. mosaic, right? And then someone fills sure. your blind spot yeah. in some way. Mm-hmm. It's important. I used to say that all the time at the Post, right? It was important that I could get basically any Black activist on the phone and that Donald Trump called Bob Costa. Mm-hmm. Right? And I wouldn't not want either of those people in the Washington Post. I thought for a second you were th- that you were saying that Bob Costa was a Black activist. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should but one, one final thing, Wes, make sure, make sure to, to apply that evenly. And the Nicole Hannah-Jones thing, I agree with you. I don't think people for one errant stray tweet, maybe Camille would say that she has many, um, make sure that that's applied to everybody, even if they have uh, politics that you don't like. I think that's a principle that should be across the board. Of course, and like I said, my, my, thing is always, my thing is always the work, right? And, and, and look, and to be clear, I think there can be legitimate complaints about the work. And I think that, I don't, also don't think, we can use that as a defense for if we screw something up, it's all just like, I, I think there are a lot of people, some have been mentioned in this call in any number of directions, who some of why people are mad at them is because they've screwed some stuff up in their work, right? And that I think is legitimate. That's what yeah. we judge on. Yeah. Right? And, and what I always said was, you know, I went through a long period of time where the Daily Callers and the Breitbarts just loved to kind of be obsessed with me because I was this crusading activist and doing all this stuff. Not one thing was ever about a thing I wrote, not once. Like, there was never any complaint about yeah, the truth. It should be on the merits. And all I've ever said is, like, don't judge me about my, like, happy hour tweet about, like, like it's just like, it, this doesn't, unless I'm calling for someone's assassination, you know, like, they're clearly <laughs> <Again. not>. oh, <laughs> constant Again. with you. Yeah. But, like, all 
all of this, like, well, you put the comma in the wrong place and this could be perceived. It's like, guys, like, this is a chat room. Like, yeah. like I mean, like, this is what there is. Like, it's not a, like, this is not my life's work. This, yeah. is, this is a thing I got off in the back of a cab on my way to a coffee, right? Like, it's, and I think that, I do think we have to be a little more generous in general, you know, across the board, to, like, judge people by their well, work. Well, t- 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 tell right. your friend, Nicole that's, Hannah-Jones, that's a dean. who has gotten a lot of criticism from real people, who are not daily, the Daily Caller are people like Sean Willens and um, Gordon Wood and such to respond to those criticisms because I would love to hear her respond. And it's just, it's it's really- Including here. I, I mean, we've invited her um, and we're, we try to be as fair as possible. And you know, the thing is with, when you come on, it's like, this could be a nine hour, this could, this could be literally the sorrow and the pity if I had anything to do with it because we just, we give people a, a you know, amount of time to- <laughs> set out their views and then we never have enough time to challenge them. But, um, yeah, but yeah, no, I think that that's still a strategy. The less I let you talk, the smaller I go. So I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah cut, well, cut his mic. Yeah, I, I think you, Wes, you've been more than gracious with your time and generous. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed the exchange tremendously. I hope you will, uh, tell folks we, we are, we are fair and generous chaps. We are also just malicious bastards who <laughs> savage you in, in public, to your face, and in private. But we, oh, we yeah. want to have cordial conversations. And so that's what I appreciate. I'll get a Twitter fight with anyone, and then we can go get a drink and get a real fight. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, like, that's like, that's fine. <laughs> and, and, and what you all know is not everyone is that way, right? And, and this was where surprising yeah. to me when I got into, like, media. Because I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I talk my shit for real. Like, you want to fight about this? Let's, like, <laughs> like, no, I'll have this debate. I'll come to your house. Let's talk about it. Like, Wes, like, I'm outside your house right now. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm shooting off fireworks. Yeah, I, yeah shooting <laughs> fire your rockets in your window. <laughs> There, I did. I did hear a podcast with Dean um, uh, the other day, and I'm trying to remember which one it, it was. was the long, the long form podcast. Okay. Who, yes, the long form. Aaron podcast. Lammer, and they're they're very good. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I often enjoy and, them. And there was something something he said about empathy as sort of the the like core of the New York Times approach of his interpretation of objective journalism. It did that did strike me as like a a principle, a standard that's attainable. And if, if there's any sort of fundamental critique of objective journalism that I think the standard that you're advancing may also run afoul of, it's the degree to which it's something that is somewhat unattainable. And at least to the degree it's not unattainable, it's amorphous in the sense that it's, it's so subjective. And empathy, on the other hand, like it does sort of oblige you to do something with your subjects. And I, I do think that that is a very instructive um, sort of guidepost. So it, it, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if you'd heard that, if you'd talked to him at all since that piece was published, since there were those two different perspectives. And I really do want to make this the last word on your way out. The one question I'll ask you related to that, the not related, and if you know, maybe it's yes or no, have you seen anyone do any kind of serious empirical survey of like the damage that's been done from some of the most um, intense demonstrations and uh, let's just say looting and violence that have happened in places like Chicago that are like particularly have been particularly hard hit? I mean, we all saw those stories about the aldermen who were having the phone call with the mayor there just getting intensely impassioned. And I have seen almost no mainstream journalists like covering that story and that given what we know about what past 
riots have done in places like D.C. that are still recovering in some instances from stuff that happened decades ago. Like, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about what that means for some of those places. And I think not talking about that is a, a profound disservice to those communities. So maybe you could hit on those two I'll things, come. and then we will really let you go. I'll do those, I'll do those in the opposite order. Um, the first is that I have not, no, I don't want to say, I, I'm not gonna, I don't want to say no one has done, right? Because what's very almost, what is almost always true is like there is someone at the Somebody. paper and all yeah. these That's why I asked, because I really don't know. And we're like, hmm, did we see this in the New York Times? Yes, no one's covered, right? I don't want to like de- declare this. I do not think, I have not seen a ton of big reporting on that. I agree with you completely. I think it's a very important set of stories to be done. I was, for as much as I got beat up for doing my like, activism coverage in Ferguson, I was the last national reporter on the ground. And the reason I stayed was to cover some of the rebuilding. Um, and so, and the last, I think, two weeks were all stories about places that got burned down. What are the efforts? How are we? Because it's an important part of the story. I, re- I remember that. On the question, yeah. right? And by the way, doing those pieces, little GoFundMes pop up. And suddenly, the, you know, like the, there's a means to like make a difference through some of that journey. Right. What I'll also say, I, I mentioned this, I was on the long form podcast, I think a week before Dean. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things I mentioned was there's very little reporting about the people who get killed. Right. Like we hear every few nights, it's like three people get shoot, shot in Louisville during the. And for me, those are some of the most important stories. Right. Who are, literally, who are these people? And what happened? Right. If you have a riot and four people get killed, how do you not know who the four people are? What are their stories? Yeah. What are their and what I might suggest is in a lot of these cases, these are black people, right, who have been shot in the crowds or whatnot. And I think I think sometimes there can be immediate apathy towards covering some of those stories, right? Um, but uh, because it's a media trope, it's gun violence, it's you know, like. But the um, I think all those stories are really important, right? I, I especially think the rebuilding stories are important, or even just the document understanding with precision. One of my pet peeves in Ferguson was that the cable news would show the gas station burning on loop. And I spent, I spent three months there. I basically lived in Ferguson, Missouri for a quarter of uh, 2014. And there was significant damage in Ferguson. It was largely along two strip malls, like two different specific strips. And then there were some other randomized violence, right? Ferguson is a pretty big suburb uh, full of a lot of nice houses and other places. And one of the things that I thought was inaccurate in some of the portrayal, at least on television, was that this entire city had been burned to the ground. I actually thought that did a disservice as well to the story being told, right? And so, that, and so I think that there is this push and pull and there's this balance between like, how do we cover a story like that with precision? Exactly what has been destroyed, right? Because it's not the whole city. Ferguson's not burned to the ground. Sure. And that's important yeah, yeah. to... Because by the way, if you own a house in Ferguson and the cable news is saying your whole city's burned to the ground, you're never going to sell that house. Like it's not good for you. Yeah, doing harm right to the people, right? Mm-hmm. Overstate the damage, right? And vice versa, right? But also, it's important to document mm-hmm. that. That's the thing I think about. Um, I think that I, I did listen to Dean's long form, and Dean and I have emailed back and forth. We know each other a little bit. We're not like close friends, but we know we know each other. Um, he emailed me before he even went on the podcast, and. Um, he, and so we've gone back and forth a few times. I don't think, and I think he said this on the podcast, I don't think there's a lot of space between the two of us on this. I think a lot of it's application, right? It's, we're choosing different words, but saying a lot of similar things. Uh, and I think that, but I was also very struck by that empathy comment. I thought that was really powerful. I thought it was really important, right? Um, a lot of what I think about in journalism is, you know, I'm still relatively young, but I've been doing exactly this since, college, right? I've I put some reps in. 
And I think about how I've grown as a journalist, how I've grown as a reporter, the lessons I've learned, right? Things as simple as a no surprises rule. Have I actually literally called everyone in this story, not sent a little side, do you want to comment, email, and then publish the moment? Like, like things that you just learn over time in real ways, the places where people sometimes skirt the ethics of it. or the. And I think I had a line in that Times column where I talked about, I think we have to be honest about the gulf between the bulk and the best in our industry. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. A lot of what I think we're all talking about are things that the best journalists already do and already do every time. But we know that the bulk of journalism is not produced by the best journalist every time, that it is under economic pressures, it's under time pressures and deadline pressures. And like, and so what I think a lot of it is about, it's, and for me, a big part of this was moving over to the investigative team for a while, where, where there was no no comment. I've called every cop in America who's committed a fatal police shooting at his house. <laughs> like, there was not any no comment. We found you, right? Or we found your lawyer, or we, because we couldn't write a fair story with that. I'm not saying that we cup, like we handled every single thing perfectly every time, but it was this sense of, no, 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 there's no, we got to hit publish. It's a, we got to get the story right. And I think that, and, and so when I think about moral clarity, again, which is my own term that I'm being hung by, and that's on me, right? But when I, about, <laughs> when I think about that, I don't think about it in terms of, not, not as much in terms of who is right and who is wrong in this story. What is the right way and wrong way to handle this story? Is this, is this a 3,000-word story? Is this blackface of Halloween a 3,000-word story? I think there's a right and a wrong answer to that, right? And I think that is, have we reached out? Are we doing harm to this person accused of a crime, on, but we don't, haven't seen the evidence yet, and we're putting their mugshot on the front page of the newspaper, right? I think there's a moral question to be asked there, right? And I sure. Think sometimes yeah. we like to say, this is just how we've always done it. We're not making any decisions. We're not... And part of what I'm arguing for is I think we have to be aware that we put our foot on the scale of a lot of stories. By covering a story, we change the story. And so I think that sometimes structurally, I think we need to ask ourselves, we have to be willing to at least ask those questions. We might make a lot of the same decisions, right? And, that could, and that's okay. But I guarantee in a lot of these cases, they're just not even questions that are being fully asked and heard out. The only question is, did you call the lawyer for the other side? Do we have a Republican to put a quote in? Not a is this the right story to be writing in the first place? Is this the correct handling? Is this fair to everyone? I think those are the questions our mainstream organizations need to be grappling with. And again, I think in my experience, not in every experience, not everywhere, in my experience, one of the excuses made is that, no, 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 all we're thinking about is, is this objective? Have we called, have we checked the box? And what I'm asking for is something that I think is a level higher than that. A quick plug at the end of that, and I agree with almost all of it, and I don't even know what I don't agree with. Well, it's in the podcast right here. We're done. We're good. All right. <laughs> Dude, just quickly, the LA Times, about 15 years ago, there's a woman whose name I forget and a project whose all- name I also forget, but she <laughs> insisted, but it's important, and it's germane, and I think it's where Wes and I totally agree and where the practice of American newspapers between 1960 and 2010 disagreed yes um she made a project of every single murder Mm. victim in la Mm. is going to get a story it's going to be a a small story whatever i'm going to find out what happened i'm going to have some sense of humanity of the person uh one of the biggest single disparities that like poisoned my eyes as a young reader of the, the the la times in the 1980s when it was arguably the best newspaper, one of the best newspapers in America, it was that you could have, you know, a single paragraph on page B7 
about all the murders that happened in South Central, 37 people would die here. But like if it wasn't someone in like a white neighborhood or or some other Tony neighborhood, it wouldn't get any uh, play. She inverted this and said, look, let's not be the fancy newspaper that doesn't talk about crime because talking about crime is inherently sensationalist. Actually reporting about crime in a thorough way and an empathetic way yeah. is inherently humanistic. It's it's saying that every person's yeah. life matters hey, in hey. this <laughs> yeah. like, coverage. Hey. It does. Hey. That's, That's actually what it says. says. Hey racist. It's actually what it says. Hey racist. So so, so that one <laughs> that woman uh, was named Julie Ovi. The pro- project was called the Homicide Report. Um, I worked for her at that project when I worked for the LA Times. She she now she's gone on to write a book that had that is very influential in criminologist space it's called Ghetto Side. Um, and the theme of this book, and I actually based the project, one of the most recent projects I did at the Post, we were Pulitzer Finance for Murder with Impunity, was based on the thesis of this project, or built on the thesis of this project. And her thesis, and her thesis was, or among her theses, were that one of the greatest devaluings of Black life in America, and one of the greatest civil rights issues in America, is the structural, systemic, whatever word you want to use, failure to solve Black murder that the government has a responsibility if its citizen is murdered to secure justice for them. And we basically throw up our hands and never solve them. And there's all types of reasons we can get it all. But like the government doesn't mm-hmm. solve the murders, right? And that, that mm-hmm. is- They're the, very bad at that. And the government, and that's the government saying, these murders don't matter, right? And you know, not explicitly saying it, not, but that that's the message that comes across and that that devalues black life. Um, we did a project after to build building on that to um, where we looked at homicide uh, arrest rates in major American cities. And we and to show how, depending on where you're murdered and who you are, it is drastically different what the chances are. And again, there are layers and complications, and it, but again, it's about people's experience and their perception. If you want to talk about why, what a relationship is with the community, their experiences in aggregate really matter. The, other, the only other thing I'll say for Jill, um, who I really appreciate, is when I was working for Homicide Report, I covered my first police shooting ever. Um, and I think about that sometimes. I still have the, um, maybe it was my second. It was one of the first. It was the first one that I was kind of driving the car on, not just helping everyone out with. And I still have this guy, Jose David Trinidad's funeral program at my desk. And it was this case where, because again, the goal, every single homicide in LA County was going to get written about. We're going to make a call. We're going to at least call the family, get some... Now, homicides, the way that worked was that the coroner's office, the L.A. County coroner, would send a spreadsheet once a week with, you know, just an Excel sheet, every homicide. That included police and involved homicides, right? Anyone killed by anyone else. And so one of my first weeks, I get this spreadsheet. I'm working my way through the five, and it's this guy, Jose de la Trinidad, he's been shot and killed. I want to say it was sheriff's deputies in L.A. Um, the two deadliest police departments in the country are LAPD and L.A. Sheriff's Department. The, um, and he is a Hispanic guy and what, and, and the police said he'd been in a car chase. His brother was driving the car. They ran a light or something, tried to pull him over. They speed off. And according to the police, Jose jumps out of the passenger seat, runs towards them, reaches into his waistband. And so they light up. So I call, so I call, that's, that's what we got. That's the press release. Those are the basics. So I call his wife, Rosie. Um, it's the day after. 
right? And, and I, I call her and she goes, and she goes, I just don't, she's like, there's no way that's ha- that happened. Here's the backstory. We're all at our niece's quinceanera. It's a Hispanic family. We're all at the niece's quinceanera. We're all eating, drinking. It's a big family party. Jose's brother just got out of prison a week ago, two weeks ago. And so he wanted to stay and catch up with his brother, right? So I took the, they had two little kids. I took the kids home. His brother agreed to give him a, a, a ride back. The, they've been drinking. Brother maybe shouldn't have been driving. He runs a light. Now he's out on parole. He can't get a DUI. He's going back to prison. So he runs. Jose is in the passenger seat going, dude, pull over. What are you doing? Stop it. I don't want any part of this. Stop it. The brother's going, I can't go back to prison. We got to get, like, I can't, I can't do this. Finally, Jose gets his brother to pull over. And this is where the shooting happens. Like, Jose gets out of the car and the shooting happens. So I write up the initial, and again, we don't know exactly what's happening. And I was the only, I think, the only person who wrote anything of substance on this police shooting at the time, right? Not even the others did little brief. I don't think anyone had written anything. And certainly no one else had interviewed the family. So, I, so we get a call a few days later. And it just so happens that there was a girl, a college student, um, living in her parents' house in this neighborhood, sitting in at her desk in the window. The shooting happened to happen across the street from her, directly across the street, under a light, like under a street light. She was in the actual scientific perfect position to see what happened. No one knew this witness existed. And she goes, no, no, he got out, he got out of the car with his hands up. He was turned around, walking backwards, and they shot him. And sure enough, when we got the autopsy, all the shots were in his back. And and suggested, medical medical examination is a subjective field as well, and suggested his arms were likely raised. And it was one of the, and so ultimately I believe his family ends up getting, the cops were not charged. That was before we were even having that conversation about police shootings, right? But I believe the family did end up getting a significant settlement, but, but it was one of those, it, I, I have to be honest when I say that that did, it, it did certainly influence my thinking about, I mean, I was 22 years old. I didn't know, it was one of the first stories I'd ever covered. One of my first like big things I had, where I, I got a source and I did a, and the cops had blatantly lied. Like, I mean, there was no question about it. They'd murdered this guy. And and I think that there is something about once you realize all of the things that are possible, it changes the skepticism you bring to every story, right? And I think, again, I think for me, that's probably a big part of why, like I said, so much of this is like the government killed someone and they need to prove it to me that this was okay. And any jump ball goes to the dead guy. Like, period. That's it. Like, I have any. And, and I think that that unquestionably was part of it because I wasn't, at the time, I wasn't in this to be some like accountability, but that wasn't. I wanted to like cover politics and be on the campaign trail. I didn't want any of this, right? And I was like, okay, I'll do this homicide report shift. And I stumbled into what appeared to be a clear murder, right? And no one being held accountable for it. And I think that, and so again, I haven't, I don't think I've ever told that story in public. Um, and it, it's weird to think about now, so many years later. But it's just one of those things where, like I said, I think I also give that, I try to give that perspective to the people I write about and where I also understand, right. I think about this in Ferguson a lot. Um, there are two reports, one that suggests Michael Brown was probably charging the officer. The other that suggests the Ferguson police were a crazy, insane, unconstitutional militia. Well, 
if you've watched the Ferguson police do the things in the second report that, are, that is documented, why wouldn't you believe they would shoot Michael Brown with his hands up? And I think that sometimes that's what's hard for us. I'm not saying the facts of what happened don't matter, but I think what, as we cover communities and cover people, we have to remember that their perspectives are shaped by their lived experiences. And, and so, and what is believable for what a police officer might do is different for different communities based on what they've seen with their eyes. And so, like I said, I, and fortunately, unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of different stuff with my own eyes throughout my reporting experience. And so I think that's one of the reasons sometimes where I'm, I'm like, look, I need you guys to prove the, I need you to prove it's wrong, right? Like I need to, uh, because, because as a general rule, if there are people in Ferguson who on those first days told me some crazy anecdotes and I wish I went and gotten the police reports, but I didn't believe them. And now after the government investigation, I'm like, oh, some crazy stories walk out the door because I bet they were telling the truth. And so that's kind of how I try to think about this sometimes. Yeah. Wes Lowry, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Wes. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Wes. That was, Thank you, Wes. That was great. Good shit. Really appreciate it, man. Good shit. I'm going to go make sure I'm not fired by my girlfriend for taking so long. Good luck with night. that. I screwed the whole thing up. But... <laughs> just, go, well, just go set some off. Welcome to the it's club. fine now. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and we'll pick this up another time. Right. We're going to do it part two sometime, too. <laughs> Anytime, guys. All right. All right, man. Thank you, Wes. Thank you, Wes. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth